It's March 1982. In this episode, I have an interview with Mark Reed, the Atari Star Award winner for Getaway, which is also our game review for this episode and the inspiration for a program that I wrote, Omnivore, which is a general hex editor for Atari 8-bit binary images, as well as a map editor for Getaway. We got the usual magazine coverage, and Kevin Savitz joins us for a look at the spring 1982 APX catalog. And on top of all that, thanks to another podcast, I discover a game that may displace Jumpman as my favorite platform game of all time. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 19. I'm back from a hiatus, sort of. We'll see. I'm temporarily back anyway. The hiatus was all about me working on this program. I just got the bug. I got the bug to write some stuff. So I've had this idea for a long time. And then during the interview you'll hear of this episode, I kind of got the idea of trying to make an editor for the game Getaway. You know, I had this idea for a while and I sort of sort of needed a purpose. And the interview provided me with a purpose. So during this time off, I've been writing a program called Omnivore. I announced it during the uh, retro challenge of this past year in January. What it is, it's a binary editor. So I remember back when I was hacking on the Atari 8-bits, I had this uh, hex editor. So it was like a sector editor, I guess. So you'd load up a disk, and you could hop back and forth between sectors, and you'd see the, the hex on one side, and you'd see the Atasky characters on the other side. And that was a big part of my fun with the Atari, was hacking with these games, you know, either try to break copy protection or change the the graphics or something. I've never really forgotten that, and so I was trying to figure out a way, some some way that I could bring that back and sort of recreate the fun that I had back when I was a kid. So I'm a Python programmer. That's the language, my language of choice currently, and I use a particular windowing toolkit, GUI toolkit called WX Python. So I wrote this program called Omnivore. It's a it's free and open source. It runs on modern hardware, but you can load up Atari 8-bit executable images or ATRs. Uh, XFD images, and then look at the raw binary values. It also shows stuff in graphical view, so you can see like the, the bit representation of the bytes, and you can see the patterns that show up as like the player missile graphics. And then you can edit the text in a tasky mode or in the antic map mode. It also pulls out files, so you can see individual files. It's got multi-select, so you can select a various number or various parts of the file and operate on that. Because it has these binary operations, you can do all sorts of different bit manipulation operations on these bits of, mul- of the multi-selection. I've added to complex searching, so you can search for particular values, you can search for ranges, you can search for expressions, and it'll highlight those areas, and then you can like skip back and forth between the, um, the individual bits that have been found. It was fun to write, and then I'm kind of now getting back into the mode of, like, oh, I kind of missed the podcast, so I'm going to do this episode here, and we'll see how... Um, <laughs> we'll see what the next, how long it takes for the next episode to come out. But there are two people I want to thank in particular. The first is Kevin Savitz, who he was my first beta tester. Very early on, I sort of let him know that I was going to do this and see if he wanted to, to help out. And he was an extremely thorough tester. He gave me a lot of really quality feedback right from the beginning. And he tested some really buggy versions for sure. He used it to explore Jumpman and uh, did some cool stuff with the hacking right, right on the Jumpman ATR that I hope we'll talk about in another episode. And then once I got the program a little more stable, Wade from Inverse Itasky 
offered to test the map version. So he used it to create a new map for Getaway. And I'll include a link in the show notes to the Atari Age forum post where we published all this stuff. But he created a completely new level for Getaway and discovered a bunch of stuff that we'll talk about a little bit later on in the um, in the episode. So thanks to both to Kevin and Wade. They're instrumental in getting this out there and published. So you, if you are at all interested in hacking on Atari 8-bit binary stuff, I would encourage you to check out Omnivore. I've got a page on the website, which is playermissile.com slash Omnivore. Originally, I was going to name it Omnimon, because as the um, as you might remember, if you had 8-bits back then, there was this hardware sort of add-on board that you could stuff in your Atari 800. I guess they had an XL version as well. But it was a, a monitor that the 800 lacked, like the Apple II had. And this, you could jump into a running program by a, a keystroke combination, and then you get the you get access to the whole system. You could see all the all the memory. You could change memory. You could save it out to disk. And that's how I cracked several programs. I originally wanted to name this program Omnimon as sort of a tribute to that. But then I discovered reading in Atari Age that Omnimon is still actually being used by people, and so I didn't want to create confusion. So Kevin Savitz helped me pick out the new name, so Omnivore, which is ironic in that both Kevin and I are vegetarian. But you know, we found it amusing, so there it is, Omnivore. He came up with the tagline, Bite into the meat of Atari software. That's B-Y-T-E. We're killing ourselves over here. So anyway, that's what I've been doing during this hiatus. Um, so yeah, I still sort of intend to take a little bit more time off and continue working on Omnivore, but I certainly don't intend to abandon the podcast either. I'm just not sure as to how regular the schedule might be. But thanks for sticking with me, and I appreciate everybody listening. All right, let's do a little feedback. It's been several months since I've done the podcast. There's uh, feedback covering quite a range of time. Way back after I just released the last episode, Kevin Savitz said um, when I had mentioned that he had uh, done a lot of work for uh, the Internet Archive, posting all these archives and videos for old um, Apple II shows and stuff, I thought that, that Kevin had done all that by himself, but it turns out he was working with Jason Scott, so uh, the credit for that stuff should go both to him and Jason Scott. Jason did all the posting of the um, Kansas Fest stuff from 2015, and Kevin had worked on the stuff from previous years that had never been edited or posted. Speaking of Kansas Fest, Kansas Fest is coming up this year. I hope to be able to go again. It was fun, despite being an Atari user and a sea of Apple II users. I've heard Kevin say he's going to go again, so maybe we'll get some more Atari users there as well. In the last episode, I asked about the format of the podcast, if it might change it or something to make it easier for me to produce. Uh, my friend Neil in Scotland... We said possibly you could either make the podcast shorter with a regular format with interviews as specials with perhaps like their own numbers. You kind of like the Antic podcast does. And he said he really likes the game reviews and especially the tech details. And I do too. I really like the tech stuff. That's just the, the time involved. And so that's, I was like trying to think if that would be something I could cut to keep it easier to produce and make me get them out on a more regular schedule. It's like, I don't know. I'm still fighting that. Wade from Infrastasky also said that he likes the technical dive into the games. And he said if it takes longer to produce, I'm okay with that. But I feel your pain on the research side but the dive will be missed should you decide to remove it. Yeah, I agree. I think as one of the things that maybe differentiates this podcast from other podcasts that I've heard anyway is the sort of the jump into the really technical stuff of the games. So I do like that about the podcast, but it takes so long. Yeah, so I'm still struggling with what to do about the format of the show. Another feedback from Kevin Lund. He said, uh, I just want to drop a quick note about another outstanding podcast. Well, thanks, Kevin. Appreciate that. He said, thanks again for the mention of the San Leandro Computer Club meeting. I'll let the guys know that you're probably going to attend. And since that podcast came out, and now I've actually gone twice to the San Landro Club meeting. The first time I went, I brought my 1200XL to see if anybody might be there to help me get it working again, because it was on the fritz. 
And Bob 1200XL from Atari Age is there. He's a regular attendee and he offered to fix the, the my XL for me. So when, when I went again this, this past month and here in March, he brought it back. And what turned out happened, the, the, um, the power lights, if you remember the 1200XL right at the, the sort of the top of the keyboard, there's a, a string of like power lights. And it's a very flimsy connection in there. So he had resoldered those. And then also fixed my keyboard. My keyboard was not working. So he gave me a whole new keyboard. And he also discovered that I had EEPROMs for the OS. So he said, it's a very early 1200XL that I have. And there's an Atari Age forum post, which I'll include a link in the show notes to the uh, serial number tracker. And it turns out, yeah, I do have one of the earliest 1200XLs that is, that is listed in that um, spreadsheet. It was one of the ones that was still produced when it was produced here in uh, the Bay Area before they shipped all the manufacturing to Taiwan. You know, when I, when I originally brought it there the, to the meeting, I was like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not worth getting fixed. You know, maybe I'll just find an 800XL with, um, you know, maybe expanded RAM or something. And it's like, ah, whatever. And, you know, Bob asked me, so how did you, how'd you get this machine? You know, what, what kind of condition was it in when you got it? And I said, oh, well, it's my original machine. I said, oh, well, we've got to fix it then. So that's when he was like, he was all excited about getting it working for me again. But yeah, that's the one I got in 1983 in that little six month window when they had the 1200XL before they sort of canned that and went to the 800XL and 600XL. So yeah, so now I have a working 1200XL. My original work, my first ever machine is back to working. So I have to thank Bob a lot for fixing that and for a very reasonable price as well. So if you're in the Bay Area, come on out to the San Leonardo Computer Club meeting. They meet the first Tuesday of every month. There, I'll include a link to the show notes to the, the website that uh, has all the details for the upcoming meetings. And speaking of Bay Area meetings, here's one that's coming up. Hey, Rob. It's Bill Kendrick from the XCGS Cart by Cart podcast. I want to let you and your listeners know that I'm hosting my 8th annual Atari party this summer out here in Davis, California. That's near Sacramento and not far from the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley. It's free and will undoubtedly have at least one Atari set up. It's a one-day event on Saturday, July 30th. Visit newbreedsoftware.com slash Atari party for more info. Thanks. Another show in the Bay Area coming up is the Vintage Computer Fest West. It was a long-running show that's been also dormant for a long time, but now it's coming back. It's August 6th and 7th of this year at the uh, Computer History Museum in Mountain View. So I hope you'll be able to go to that one as well. And not really Atari 8-bit related, but there's also a fun one that I'm hoping to go to this year. I wasn't able to go last year because Kansas Fest conflicted with it. But it's the California Extreme. It's an arcade game show that is on July 16th and 17th in Santa Clara. All right, back to other feedback. Dan Boris sent me a note, said, the, I was playing around with your Omnivore tool, and I have to say that you did quite a nice job on this. Well, thanks very much, Dan. And he asked about some character display modes. So the Omnivore can display the characters in graphics 0, in graphics 1 or 2, which are the four-color modes that with the large expanded characters, and also in antics mode 4 and 5, which are the five-color graphics modes. And then you can also change the colors. There's a, there's a color palette tool that you can use to change the colors to whatever you want. You can also view it in different fonts, too, so you can load up different fonts and display your data in whatever font you're using. Like in the Getaway Map Editor, you, it actually loads the Getaway font, so you can see all the, the characters used, and you can write your own maps. But Dan continued on, and he said, uh, I'm not sure if I contacted you about this, but I recently released an Atari disk image tool that I've been working on, mainly for personal use for ages. It's done in C-sharp, and it's completely open source, so people can use the disk management code in other projects if they want to. And I'll include links to that. It's a very nice tool, and you know, had I known he was working on this, I just wasn't very plugged into that um, on the Atari Age forums. I might have taken more use of his code, and so as it, as it is, I definitely looked at his code and the way he handled the uh, file system stuff because it it has a lot more support for the file system. Uh, you know, I I do have some code where you can look at the file at the Atari DOS file system and you can pull out the files and stuff, but I don't have write support 
yet. And his tool does. So you can actually include uh, new files in the disk image. I hope to add that at some point, but I don't have that right now. And another email exchange with Dan, which I will talk about in the main section. Let's talk about some listener-written programs. There was the Retro Challenge in January. I entered Omnivore in there, sort of uh, surreptitiously, I guess. I set it up, and my original entry was that I was just going to create a new map for Getaway. And I kind of did a little misdirection in that the end of the... Right at the end, the last day, I said, surprise, I was actually working on an editor, not an actual map. And I thought I might be able to pull off a, a sneaky trick and get in there and get some more like notice for the program that way. And I thought I had a shot at winning the contest, but sad face, I did not. There were a lot of other entries that were like running on actual hardware, retro hardware, and I think that had more sway with the judges. One of the Atari entrants that won was Tom Radna's uh, Windows IDE and code builder for his text user interface. So I'll include a link to his blog on the on his webpage that tells all about that. And it's cool. It's actually cross-platform as well. So on running on a bunch of different 6502 systems, you can use his, his code to generate this text user interface. So I would definitely check that out if you're interested in writing some code with a text interface. As a reminder, if you have some uh, programs that you want me to feature in this listener-written program section, just give me an email. Let me know. I'm happy to publicize it here on the podcast. Let's talk about some MAME stuff. I've mentioned this podcast a bunch of times. It's my favorite non-Atari podcast. It's the 10 Pence Arcade podcast. And, well, many episodes ago now, since <laughs> since I last talked about them, they covered a game called Flicky. And, you know, the previous few episodes, they were doing, like, fighting games and stuff. So this is the first classic game they'd covered in a little bit. And I said, oh, what the heck, I'll try it. And so I put it on MAME, and wow, is it a good game. It's definitely in my top five games. I never played it before, never seen it, you know, in the arcades or anything. Uh, it was a 1984 game released by Sega. It's a platform game. It's very smoothly animated. You're this little bird. I have to collect chicks and return it back to the the home base. But the play mechanics are great. It's just it's it's very like smooth. It's got a a one. It's a two directional joystick and a one jump button, and that's it. So you just do left, right, and jump. But you're being chased by cats, and then later on, this little iguana comes and chases you. So you jump up to levels, try to get the collect the ducks, and bring them back to the the home door. But everything about this game is great, and um, it's testing my loyalty to Jumpman, actually, for my favorite platform game. And they mentioned on the 10 Pence Arcade, and I remember listening to it back very early on in um, No Quarter, they talked about Flicky. But for some reason, I never had uh, tried it back then. But when Sean and Vic talked about it this time, I was, you know, prompted to try it. And um, since then, I've been entering some of their contests to try to see if I can get a score. And I'm always near the bottom. I think Sean now is up to like 1.5 million on, on Flicky. I think I'm at like 160,000 now, and uh, my oldest is really into it. He's, um, I think, over 220,000 now, up to level 21. I'm stuck on about 160,000 at level 10. As I mentioned before, I built this MAME cabinet with the idea of having like modular panels and stuff. And so this game was the one that caused me to add my first button, because previously I just played Pac-Man on the machine. But this game was so good, I added another button. So I now have two modular panels, one with a four-way stick, and I have another panel with a single button. I suppose I'll have to add another button at some point. I think the next game I might put on there will be Crazy Climber, so I'll need two eight-way joysticks. At this point, I'm trying to think about like nonviolent games that I can use that are uh, like also appropriate for kids. So talking about MAME, it, it brings me back kind of like to the, my days of hacking on the Atari 8-bit stuff. I was like, well, maybe I could hack Flicky to change some of the graphics just to you know personalize it somehow. So I've been kind of working on Omnivore to be able to load up MAME ROMs. And this brings me back to Dan Boris, who mentioned previously in the feedback section. We talked a little bit on some email exchanges 
he was very into the main project and has a bunch of really high quality descriptions of the work that he did. It's got a really a lot of really excellent uh, write-ups and documentation of MAME drivers and how they work. The, and um, in particular, he's got a walkthrough of what he did to get the game Zarzon working in MAME. As an aside, no quarter reviewed that one, and <laughs> neither of them liked it. But and I, ta- I, I talked to Dan about that, and he said, "Yeah, it's not a great game, but it sort of it was the an illustrative game on on how you would go about getting the driver working." So I've linked a, a bunch of stuff that he's written up on his website. Really, really interesting if you're interested in you know the technical details of what it takes to get you know a main driver going, starting from how do you dump the ROMs all the way to figuring out how to display the code on the using the main um, utilities in, inside the source code. He's even got a bit about how he could tell just by reading the schematics how the ROM chips were mapped to memory, which to me seems like magic. So yeah, again, really excellent stuff. Um, definitely encourage you to read that. And through that documentation, I sort of I have started to figure out how to display the some of the graphics. I haven't quite gotten it implemented in Omnivore yet, but I think I know how to display it now. It appears that it's a common occurrence that graphics will be mapped in bit planes. Like each ROM chip will have one bit plane. Like in Flicky, it's there's three bit planes, but they're mapped sequentially. Like so, the whole first bit plane is in 2,000 hex worth of data, and then the next bit plane is the next 2,000 hex. So to look at graphics, you actually got to be able to overlay sections of memory that are 2,000 hex apart and they'll overlay on top of each other in order to see what the graphics actually look like. So at some point, I hope Omnivore will handle that. It doesn't quite yet. And well, I've kind of talked about some tech stuff, so this will be a sort of an abbreviated tech section. I thought about entering the Atari Bitbiter Users Club software contest this year, but I don't think I'm going to get to do that. I think Omnivore is taking more of my time, and then I still have, I don't have a good library for 8-bit stuff. I don't want to sort of like invent my own 8-bit tools, or I'd like to at least try to leverage other people's stuff, you know. But I did find a collection of uh, some 8-bit tools on uh, GitHub, which I will link to. But I just kind of, I, I think, I think, kind of think I'm bidding up, I think I'm biting off too much to try to, like, start a game from scratch. I don't know, you know, I sort of aspired to be a game designer when I was a kid, and that was what kind of got me motivated to do the 8-bit. But I, I don't, don't know that I have the game design talent. I don't know if I can make something that's fun. I can make the tools, but I don't know that I can make it fun enough. So I don't know, that's kind of where I am now about writing a game. What I might try to do is like prototype something in, you know, Python and Kiwi, which is one of the um, sort of 2D game generation toolkits available for, you know, Python being a modern language. You know, if I prototype something that way and get the sort of logic going, maybe I can make it fun that way before I spend the time trying to figure out how to do it in 6502. I think I'm kind of better at at the sort of hacking of existing games and figuring out. So, and one of the uh, things I want to do is try to figure out Jumpman and maybe create some new levels for Jumpman. And there's a really good talk on YouTube by John Acock, who's a, a lecturer at the University of Calgary, I believe. I'll include a link to that in the show notes, but he, it's a talk on retro game archaeology. We're pretty, pretty much exactly this, where he goes and looks at old games and tries to figure out how they work. And I think I would like to try to do that with Jumpman. So maybe instead of creating my own game, I will try to figure out Jumpman. It's interesting. I never thought my loyalty to Jumpman would ever be tested by another platform game, but here Flicky is coming in and sort of made that a possibility. I never thought that would happen. But still, Jumpman is my favorite Atari 8-bit platform game and 8-bit game, period. And if it's not your favorite Atari 8-bit platform game, you would be incorrect. Feedback to antic at ataripodcast.com. Right now we're going to have a new section of the podcast. This is the Countdown to Hostilities. We are T-minus 28 months till Jack Trammell's purchase of Atari Inc. and the changeover to Atari Corp. We're in March 1982. Your current CEO is Ray Kassar. And we're going to start looking at 
uh, notable events from Michael Current's Atari timeline. So March 2nd, there was a preliminary injunction upheld for Atari against uh, Philips, who had, because uh, Atari owned the rights to home versions of Pac-Man, and they thought that the Casey Munchkin on the Odyssey 2 infringed upon that, and the courts agreed. On March 9th, Atari announced they were going to have a dedication of a new building manufacturing facility in El Paso on the 12th through the 15th of March. And also another one in Puerto Rico. The El Paso manufacturing will become known later on for the dumping of the ET cartridges. And the Antic Podcast has interviewed a couple people that worked at the uh, El Paso facility. Also in March, Alan Kay founded the uh, Sunnyvale Research Laboratory, which would serve as a home for uh, the Atari corporate research department. A lot of names you've heard of will, will, have go, through, will go through there, like Chris Crawford, Douglas Crockford, Eric Wilmunder of Star Raiders 2 fame, Warren Robinette, Jack Palevich, and many others. There was a corporate design research group that was formed, and there also there was a advanced products group. And this group would later turn out to be the Atari Television, which was that um, phone system that never actually got anywhere, but it was well advanced for its time. It was purchased by the French company, if I recall correctly. Also this month, Atari announced the Atari Computer Camps for 10 to 18-year-olds interested in computers. The camps were a first such effort by a major computer manufacturer. And Kevin Savitz did a really nice episode about the computer camps um, sometime last year. I'll include a link to that, those in the show notes. On March 18th, a federal judge ordered that uh, Phillips remove Casey Munchkin from the market as it was too similar to the Pac-Man. And um, the market rights were held by Atari, and so Atari won that court battle. The 7th West Coast Computer Fair was March 19th through 21st. And Atari held their second annual hospitality suite for Atari Computer Users Group officers and their guests. It said about 80 people attended. It said there were a total of 200 user groups registered with Atari at that time. That's amazing. So again, check out Michael Current's history timeline. A very, very detailed summary of not just Atari's history at this point, but all the corporate history from its inception all the way through the winding down of the whatever zombie shell corporation owns Atari now. Yep, so like I said, T-minus 28 months until war comes to Atari. War was, of course, Jack Trammell's famous saying, business is war. We all sort of think of this Jack Trammell, we in, who uh, like the 8-bits anyway, think of Jack Trammell as this sort of ogre who kind of destroyed all the fun stuff about the Atari Corporation. You know, Atari had its own problems well before Trammell bought it. You know, the excesses have been documented in some of the recent Antic interviews, just the amount of money that went through that place and just kind of just thrown everywhere and mismanaged. Trammell was famous for being a sort of penny pincher. I read that... Um, any in Commodore, when he was running Commodore, any purchase over $1,000 had to go directly through him. He's sort of famous for pissing off a lot of uh, vendors and stuff, and the relationships he had with the external, with third parties at Commodore was not good, and when he came to Atari, that also sort of perception followed him. You know, personally, he's an amazing story. He's an Auschwitz survivor. He lost most of his family in the concentration camps, you know, came to the States, and then went to Canada and built businesses there, and then came back to the States built up some businesses and then several times was squashed by competing businesses. Most well known is the story where Commodore tried to get into pocket calculators and then TI jumped over that market and then was selling entire calculators for less than Tremel could get the CPU for it. So from that, Tremel bought MOS technologies and brought that in-house so he could design processors without having to go through the, the supply chains of somebody else. Yeah, in entire circles, he's kind of regarded as a, a villain to the 8-bits. There's a, a different perspective on Jack Trammell from um, Robert X. Cringely that I'll link to in the show notes. You know, kind of more the, the personal, the human side. I went from the 8-bits to the ST, and I, you know, I enjoyed my ST. Had I known more about the Amiga, I might have gone to the Amiga instead. You know, the Amiga really being the spiritual successor 
to the 8-bits designed by the same folks and has the same kind of ideas in terms of graphics. And all in all, it was a, probably a, a better and more interesting machine. You know, the SD was pretty bare bones. It had the 68000 and a simple graphics chip, and that was it. Whereas the Amiga had, you know, a lot of custom graphics hardware, just like the Atari 8-bits did. However, I really liked my ST. I thought it was great. You know, I did. I learned a lot of stuff. I learned C. I learned, you know, sort of modern development on the ST. My good friend Neil I met through the ST. So I don't regret my the purchase of my, the ST, although, you know, in some alternate timeline, I'd be interested to see how I could have done with the Amiga. But the one thing that set the ST above all others was the game Dungeon Master. And that was my favorite game on the ST. Definitely my top five favorite games ever. And there's a great series by Jimmy Marr about Dungeon Master, and there's a another one on the copy protection of Dungeon Master. So I'll link both of those in the show notes. And while talking about the Amiga as well, uh, he wrote a book called The Future Was Here. It's in the same series as the Racing the Beam, which is that excellent book about the 2600. So while I didn't have an Amiga and sort of some of the technical details are sort of kind of beyond me in this book, I figured it's a nice way to support him in all the good work that he does on the website by purchasing his book. Yeah, I always think I'm not going to have enough stuff to talk about, and here I am 25 minutes in, and <laughs> it's time to get to the magazines. This first one we'll look at is the Atari Connection. It's for spring 1982. The Internet Archive puts it at March, so that's why we're covering it at March. It's volume two, number one, $3 on the cover price. On the cover, there's a picture of two, a boy and a girl, probably, I don't know, eight or ten years old, playing with their Atari 800. Smiles on their faces, looking at the off-screen monitor. It says, a new world of information. There's a getting acquainted section. It's a letter from Roger, letter from Roger Batterstetcher, 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 Batterstetcher. Batterster? Batterster. Roger Batterster? Roger Batterster? says, this issue of Atari Connection marks the first anniversary of its publication. This past year has been both exciting and rewarding, and we at Atari have experienced unprecedented growth as more and more of you have chosen to bring the computer age into your homes with our computers, programs, and accessories. Talks a little bit about APX and says, keep reading the Atari Connection. I think we'll have some pleasant surprises for you in 1982. We're still on the upswing of Atari. We haven't sort of hit the peak and definitely haven't crashed down with the Tremel era. It's a little bit about the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show. Talking about how they had a booth with APX there. There's a special feature on Home Information Pioneers. There's a picture of an Atari 800 kind of looking over a data center. And there's also another picture of the old acoustic modem. It's kind of like a summary of how networks might affect your job. Talking about how employees might work from home and telecommute, which is what I do for my job. But I don't think I could have done my job back in the 80s. Talks a little about stuff, services like CompuServe and then French services, BBC services in the UK. Introduced terms like email, which is your message storage and retrieval system. Bulletin boards, which in this use they say just like list for items for sale. So essentially like a classified ads. Stuff you can do with your computer. It's pretty much focused on CompuServe and how you use the Telink 1 cartridge in your Atari 830 acoustic modem. There's a new product section here introducing My First Alphabet, which is a new computer game for preschoolers. You've probably heard the name Fernando Herrera. He started First Star Software from the proceeds he got from My First Alphabet. He won the $25,000 Astari Star Award. And there's an interview with uh, Kevin Savitz on the Antic Podcast with Kevin, with Fernanda Herrera. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Another new project is Caverns of Mars, which certainly becomes a hit for APX. And then there's an article here summarizing the first annual Atari Star Awards. And again, pet peeve, it's inaugural, because you can't have a first annual if you've never had a first. So yeah, anyway. So yeah, again, they detail that uh, Fernando Herrera won the first one uh, for uh, My First Alphabet. They have a picture of Fernando Herrera standing above a monitor displaying his his work. Ron and Lynn Marcuse won an award of merit for three programs they submitted. It says Sheldon Lehman of Oak Park, Michigan, received an award of merit for his Instedit program. 
which says is a character set editor for basic and assembly language programs. And then Greg Christensen won an award of merit for Caverns of Mars. So that kind of details the system. It says the at this point, the, it was called the Atari Software Acquisition Program before it was kind of folded in APX. But so they give out 12 quarterly awards, each worth up to 3000 and then the yearly $25,000 Atari Star Award kind of goes over the details of how you submit a program to APX. And says, because of all the Atari computer enthusiasts out there, we offer programs like these through APX and ASAP. We're excited by the response you've shown and eagerly await your creative programming efforts. There's a section here on usage of computers in education for teaching students with various physical challenges. And there's a story on the Atari mobile computer van, where the interior of the van lined up with about 18 CRT monitors. You can only imagine you have to be a... You get a pretty good workout moving those monitors from the van to whatever demo space you're using. There's a little article about how Atari donated a computer Christmas tree to San Francisco. There was a computer controlled lights connected to an Atari 800, so you could press a button and different lights would come on in the tree. There's an article on Atari basic graphics design, how to plot some rectangles and stuff. It's got a bunch of little snippet listings in basic, how to use a set color and plot commands and stuff like that. In the kidbit section, there's a couple letters that got published for some... Uh, there's an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old who wrote in. They sent little programs in, and they got T-shirts. I wonder if those kids credit the Atari 8-bits with their you know, educational development like I do. Yeah, they both submitted you know, neat little what, 14, 15-line programs in BASIC to draw stuff on the screen. Sean Heitman and Philip Morgan Jr., I wonder if they're in computers right now. There's a little find-the-bug contest where they have a little snippet, and you're supposed to find the bug, and so they show the solution from last month or last issue, and they have another issue. Another uh, contest this issue. But not the Tom Hudson from Analog, the Tom Hudson that worked for Atari that was interviewed by Kevin Savitz more recently. But of course, the Tom Hudson from Analog was also interviewed by Kevin. And the inside back cover is the Atari gift catalog. There's a bunch of nice Atari stuff. There's a Space Invaders t-shirt with the Atari 2600 Space Invaders. There's a bunch of polo shirts with the Atari logo. The Atari belt buckle. Atari backpack. Uh, that'd be cool. All right, now let's uh, join Kevin Savitz for a dramatic reading of the APX Spring Catalog. Hey, it's Kevin Savitz, and I am looking at the Spring 1982 Atari Program Exchange Catalog. Price $1, but that's kind of a joke because everyone got it in the mail for free. Uh, The cover uh, is a polyptic of nine drawings by the usual wonderful artist cartoons that shows the process by which Atari Program Exchange uh, programs get published. Uh, Number one, the idea germinating. Number two, writing the program. Number three, debugging the program. Number four, writing the manual. Uh, Number five, trying out the program. Number six, adding the final touches. And then mailing the package, getting the program accepted, and collecting payment. And uh, cute pictures. And the last one, the man is leaning back in his chair with his feet up on the desk next to the Atari unable to count the piles of money that's uh, fluttering around him. Inside, $25,000 grand prize winning program. What will it be? So it says the first issue of 1982 spotlights several APX program authors. And it says this issue features the winners of the first annual Atari Star Awards of Merit and the grand prize winner. Writers really aren't supposed to use the words first annual, Uh, You're supposed to use the word inaugural, but we'll let Atari slide on this one. Uh, Because actually, I'm not sure how many uh, subsequent Atari Star Awards there will end up being. 
In the introductory letter, they highlight that of special interest to programmers in this issue is the new availability of Atari Pascal and DeRay Atari, the long-awaited reference that really will end up changing for the better than the quality and number of programs available for this machine. There's a great picture of the prize winners uh, who were flown out to San Francisco. It says, uh, we temporarily rescued four such authors from the bitter cold spell that swept the nation in mid-January by flying them to San Francisco for a weekend of festivities. We gathered on a brisk, sunny Sunday afternoon at Maxwell's Plum, a new restaurant with superb views of the bay to honor our first annual Atari Star Award winners. There's a picture of uh, Sheldon Lehman, Greg Christensen, Paul Cubbage, and Fernando Herrera, and Ronald and Lynn Marcuse. Fernando Herrera was the big winner, the 25,000 grand, grand prize winner uh, with his winning program, My First Alphabet. So let's see what's new in this catalog. Uh, first, the personal finance and record keeping category. Uh, Family Budget by Jerry Falkerhan is a new program in addition to Diskette Mailing List by William Bartlett and RPN Calculator Simulator by John Crane. Also new is the Isopleth map making package, which has a very pretty screenshot. I really have no idea what it does, but it's fun to look at. Here's a computer mapping package that creates Isopleth maps without the tedious and often subjective hand contouring that is usually required. It's true, I really am really bothered by having to hand contour all of my isopleth maps. Moving to the personal interest and development category, Sketchpad by Dwayne King, kind of a doodling kaleidoscope program, and Advanced Music System by Lee Actor, a machine language program recommended for ages 11 and up for creating and playing very complex music uh, with complex rhythms and rapid tempos. Next up is Word Maker by Dale Disharoon, a friendly and educational spelling competition game. And also new by Dale Disharoon, Cubby Holes, a fresh approach to teaching addition. Also in the education category, uh, Musical Computer, the Music Tutor, by a company called Computer Applications Tomorrow. They'll end up writing uh, several things for APX. I should probably try to figure out who those people are and interview them one of these days. And then Starware by Harry Coons and Art Prague, which is a program for mapping constellations. Now we move into the entertainment category with Blockbuster, which is basically a Rubik's Cube, kind of an interesting display. So you can see three sides of the cube uh, as if the cube were facing you, but then on the back side and bottom, there is sort of like a mirror so you can see what's on the sides of the cube that normally you couldn't see. Kind of an interesting display. Uh, Program by Alan Griesmeyer and Stephen Bradshaw. Eastern Front 1941 still has a full page devoted to it because everybody loved that game. And in the system software category, also gets a full page, is Atari Pascal Language System, 
recommended for advanced programmers familiar with Pascal, written in Pascal and assembly language. This page talks about how Pascal is a structured programming language suited for professional software developers, making it an excellent tool for developing and maintaining programs. Uh, this program will cost $49.95 and uh, requires two Atari 810 disk drives and the Atari program text editor, which is on the next page. Cost uh, $39.95 for that text editing program. And a little further down in that category, also new are keypad controller, which allows you to use the uh, 10 key keypad accessory to uh, input numbers into your Atari. That's uh, only $12.95 by Thomas Newton. And the GTIA demonstration disc, a $14.95 program that basically shows you pretty things that uh, your computer can do with the GTIA chip. On the next page, Speed-O-Disc by Jubal Ragsdale and Dave Henry, a program that uh, will tell you how exactly how fast your Atari uh, disk drive is working. Should be going at 288 RPM, uh, $17.95 for that one. And on page 67, buried way in back into the new publication section is Day Ray Atari by, there's a long list of people, uh, Amy Chen, Jim Cox, Chris Crawford, Jim Dunyon, Bob Fraser, Kathleen Petta, and Lane Winner uh, for 1995. Day Ray Atari tells you everything you want to know about the Atari 400, 800 home computer, but were afraid to ask. Actually, a lot of people weren't afraid to ask. They had been asking for months how to do these things, and Atari wasn't really giving up the goods uh, until now. Finally, uh, this book will come out, and all sorts of great programs are going to come out as a result. Uh, next up is the hardware section. Um, you can still buy a variety of uh, sockets and shells and plugs and DIN connectors and things for your Atari. And then an adorable order form on the end because, yeah, mail order, you had to uh, fill out the form and, and mail it into them to get your products. Uh, California resident at 6.5% sales tax. $2.50 shipping and handling, no matter the size of your order. The APX catalog is always fun to read through. Seems like there's fewer new stuff in this catalog uh, versus the previous one. They really go out of the way to point out the new stuff as well as current and previous winners of their contest. That's it for the APX Spring 1982 catalog. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want to see it for yourself. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate taking the time to do that. I know you've got a lot of time in your approximately, what, 742 interviews that you've produced in between the time of my last episode and this one. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out to do that for me. So let's look at Byte Magazine. This is March 1982, volume 7, number 3. Two bucks, 95 in the US, three bucks, 50 in Canada. As usual, another amazing Robert Tinney artwork on the front cover. It's a, sort of an isometric view of a printer with the sort of green and white fan fold paper coming out and this calligraphy saying printers and a little kind of fountain pen kind of sneaking out writing the stuff. So apparently it's going to be about printers. I'm perceptive like that. Anyway, as usual, the 58,000 page-ish issue. So I'll just be covering mostly the Atari-specific stuff. But yeah, there's always a few things that interest me, so I will stop and we'll take a quick summary of those as I drive by. There's an ad for CPM86, the standard in the 16-bit world, it says. So in the Internet History Podcast, they did a special episode, episode 100, 
on Gary Kildall and sort of the legend of IBM, digital research, and Microsoft. You know, the legend being, of course, that Gary Kildall was out flying when IBM came calling and wouldn't sign their non-disclosure agreement, and therefore prompted Bill Gates to get into the DOS market and setting up Microsoft to be the biggest corporation in the world. And as usual to things like that, there's there's some truth in a bunch of sort of half-truths and legends that come out of that. Um, but he does a good job of kind of getting into that, um, sort of what he could find and the facts that he was able to find. But yeah, it would have been a different place had CPM 86 being been chosen for IBM or shoot, as I've talked about before, if they IBM chose the 68,000 rather than the lousy Intel architecture. But speaking of the 68,000, there's a article here with four new products from Radio Shack, and one is the TRS-80 Model 16, which it says it's two computers in one, and it's got a 68,000 in it. But not only that, it has a Z80, so all the Model 2 stuff can run in emulation mode, And but it's got the 68,000 for sort of advanced 16-bit stuff. It's got two slimline 8-inch disk drives, and you can even take out one and put in a, what is it, an 8-megabyte Winchester hard drive. So big data storage there. It's, it's uh, one of those built-in units, all-in-one kind of things, it's, but it's only got monochrome graphics. And so it, this article kind of says that, well, you know, maybe it's not going to do as well against the PC because it doesn't have the color graphics like the PC has. You know, as bad as the PC graphics are, but still it's four colors better than two color. There's a column, Bytes Arcade. This is a Apple Panic. I think this is eventually available on the Atari, but of course this is the Apple II version. It's a simple little platform game. But the next game they review is Missile Command by Atari. <laughs> the audience, they say, is any Atari computer owner who enjoys a good game. <laughs> it's okay, because that's everybody. They say, why is it successful? Though none of the editors on the Byte staff advocate nuclear war, we all agree that Missile Command is a good game. <laughs> so, yeah, we agree for different reasons, and therein lies the reason for the game's success. So some people enjoy the competitiveness of trying to better another person's score. Others enjoy the interaction between the human and the computer. <laughs> and some enjoy the lights, noise, and the satisfaction of symbolically blowing things up. Yeah. <laughs> My enjoyment stems mostly from not having to pump quarters into the computer. There are those who object to the overt violence implicit in the game. After all, the destruction of cities is a very violent activity. A friend of mine once said that the games of this type only encourage the acceptance of warfare as a viable solution to problems that could be settled peaceably. I asked if he'd ever played chess. When he said yes, then I asked if he could thought his aggressive activities on the chessboard affected his actions in real life. Alright, then we get into the Atari Tutorial Part 7, Sound. And this is by Bob Fraser. Maybe the first not written by Chris Crawford? I can't recall off the top of my head. So sound is the thing that I know least about the Atari 8-bits. You know, I'm comfortable with the graphics stuff, but I've never been one to be able to create my own my own music. So it defines some terms, you know, hertz, kilohertz, megahertz. Pulse is a sudden voltage rise, followed somewhat later by a sudden voltage drop, it says. If it's sent to the speaker, a pulse is heard as a pop. A wave, as used here, it says, is a continuous series of pulses. And the only way, type of waves that can be created by the Atari are square waves. A shift register is a memory location that, when so instructed, shifts all the bits right one position. Thus, the rightmost bit is pushed out, and the leftmost bit assumes a value on its input wire. It says, for the purposes of this discussion, it says frequency is a measure of the number of pulses in a given amount of time. So frequency of 100 hertz means 100 pulses in one second. So the more frequent the pulses, hence frequency, the higher the note. So it says, for example, a singer vocalizes at a high frequency of like 5 kilohertz, and a cow moos at a low frequency of about 100 hertz. The words frequency, note, tone, and pitch are used interchangeably. Noise and distortion are also used interchangeably, although the meanings are not the same. Noise is a more accurate description of the function performed by the Atari computer. So there's little figures about the operation of a shift register, and uh, it goes on to talk a little bit more about the hardware. You know, it's generated by the Pokey chip, which also has some other functions on the computer, but it, sound is a big part of it. So there are four channels of sound. And there's a frequency register and an audio control register for each of them. 
the audio control registers broken up into three sections. There's four bits for volume. There's one bit that has sets a volume only bit, and there's three bits that describe the distortion type to use. It uses polynomial counters to describe the distortion. And so polynomial counters, it says, are employed by the Atari computer as a source of random pulses in used for noise generation. They utilize a shift register working at 1.79 megahertz, and the shift register's contents are shuffled and fed back into the input and produces a semi-random sequence of bits at, of output. So in previous episodes, we have talked about polynomial counters and that it's sort of a, a process to generate pseudo-random numbers. And they're only pseudo-random because it's a, it is a polynomial, and a polynomial always will re- repeat itself after a certain amount of time. And the distortion also can, also can be modified by using a, a division circuit. So there's, there's a frequency divider that can change the type of distortion. And the Pokey has different polynomial counters. There's a 4-bit counter, a 5-bit counter, and a 17-bit counter. And the 4- and 5-bit counters repeat often enough that it says you can use them to create droning sounds that rise and fall quickly. And the larger one, the period is so long that it, it sounds like random white noise, or um, it can be used to create anything where sort of other cracking and popping or randomish sounding stuff. Then it goes into a little bit of the volume-only sound, where it doesn't use the polynomial counters at all, it just uses the volume value to push the cone of the speaker in or out. And this would be roughly equivalent to what I think would be called like pulse code modulation stuff. So you could use that to physically control the speaker to do like speech synthesis or, you know, speech synthesis in like four bits, which is not very good speech synthesis. So the frequency can be set and then the uh, the distortion value can be set. And so this can be used to make a whole bunch of different sounds. But this is all sort of a technical level. And the artistic side of how you actually make sounds that sound like other stuff or sound like what you want is still just way out there for me. I have no idea how to do that. It gives a little table. It kind of shows like various sounds. If you do this, this sound with this distortion, it'll kind of sound like a, you know, a pure musical tone. If you do this, it'll sound like a lawnmower. If you do this, it might sound like steam rising. So I think it's just a lot of, you know, trial and error, lots of just sitting there with a, a tone generator or something. And I remember many episodes ago, Chris Olson sent me a note that he found a program in um, the Atari Connection that would allow you to manipulate sounds using the joystick sort of on this 2D like plane. You can move the joystick around and you could like play around with sounds. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just a lot of experimenting and then you get to learn some of the tricks about it. But yeah, I don't understand audio at all. And this, while it helps explain the sort of the technical stuff, still there's this whole artistic realm of sound generation that is beyond me. Well, the magazine title certainly does live up to its name. There's definitely a lot of articles about printer and printer stuff. We're talking about printer interrupts. There's a stuff for plotting. You can plot with your MX80. Printing formatted charts from basic. Getting high-res output copies. On page 201, there's an ad for Atari. So the graphic difference between Atari computers and all those. Seen this one before. There's an article on how to hack a full-size keyboard onto a Sinclair ZX80 machine. You know, it's such a tiny machine that little teeny little membrane keyboard. You thought that 400 keyboard was bad. Holy cow. So it shows the keyboard matrix layout to how, and how to wire something up to the ZX80. There's an ad for LJK Letter Perfect. Actually, I'll add for LJK, so they talk about Letter Perfect, Data Perfect. Edit 6502, which is a two-pass assembler editor. I don't know if Wade's done any programming tools in Inverse Itasky. I don't think he has. But I might be out of the scope. I think he's doing productivity applications. I'm not sure that programming tools fall in productivity apps. And as we get further and further on in Byte, there's more and more ads. Are there any number of vendors advertising the Atari 800 for sale? And I always hated looking at it, at an ad and it says, Atari 816K, call for best price. It's like, I want to know what price was. I suppose, you know, the, there was such a lead time that, that if they advertise a price now, it would be much less when it came out. But still, it always annoyed me to see an ad for some somebody selling something. It said, call for best price. It's like, no, I'm not going to call. 
you're not going to show me, I'm not going to bother. All right, there you go. Slotted my way through 530 pages of Byte Magazine. Yikes, lots of ads. Hooray, let's look at Compute. This is issue 22, volume 4, number 3 for March 1982. $2.50 on the cover price. It's the Journal for Progressive Computing. That's its subtitle. At the very top of the cover page, it says, Two new personal computers for less than $200. So we'll have to see what those are. It's got its usual sort of pencil colored sort of line drawing-ish cover with a few Atari things on the front. It says uh, there's a review of Atari's Microsoft Basic and a game of concentration for the Atari. The table of contents is somewhat different this time. It's, it's broken up into kind of like rectangles instead of the normal column on the left and like doodlings on the right. There's not much additional in the uh, table of contents that's Atari specific, you know, other than the inside Atari column. So we'll go through and see. It says computes new format. As we indicated last issue... This is in the editor's notes section, by the way. The format of the magazine has been revised to allow greatest, greater flexibility in article placement. The front sections of the magazine, you'll find general interest articles, including application programs and games that have been developed to run on numerous computers. More advanced material, both applications and programming support, will be found in the journal section of the magazine. So yeah, so there you go. There's an ad for Compute's first book of Atari. The Compute, they have really had a good series of, kind of books, for sure. I don't have this one, but uh, I've got some others. There's an ad for uh, Nasser Gabelli. Who, and shoot, I forget which Antic interview he was talked about. Well, it's been serious software, so who is that? Rats, I can't remember. But yeah, there's an ad for some of his games. These are before working for Sirius, it looks like. Oh, interesting. There's another ad a little further on. There's an ad for Mar Tesoro, which is a game that uh, Michael Current and I discussed way back in the interview with him in um, episode something. Episode 9, it looks like. That was a game that he really liked that I had never heard of before. But there's an ad for it here. Synchro Software. It's an article called The Beginner's Page, How Computers Remember by Richard, Richard Mansfield. Kind of a, sort of a very basic introduction to bits and bytes and how those work. There's an article about the report a report on the January CES. Let's see if we can find out uh, two computers that were under 200 bucks. Okay, so here's one. The Panasonic introduced a 6802. That's got to be a typo. It must be 6502. The JR100. All right, it looks like the other computer was the Commodore Ultramax. Sorry, Ultimax for 149.95. So this computer, I don't know much about. I guess it might be Vic compatible? No, it looks not, because it says it has a 300 by 200 display, which is much higher than the Vic. It has a membrane keyboard, which is a part of how it gets to uh, be such a low price. doesn't have a lot of RAM. Oh, here we go. So then it says, what about those of you who want more RAM? Well, the Commodore has you in mind, too. The Commodore 64 comes with 64K of RAM using the same chipset as the Ultimax and equipped with a full-stroke keyboard. This is a $595 price tag. So there we go. So I guess this, the Ultimax was sort of a a cut-down version of the Commodore 64, kind of like the 400-800 um, differences, because uh, it says they both use the same chipsets and stuff. So this Ultimax, I'm guessing, was never really released? I don't, I've don't. i never heard of it before. Let's do a quick pause and see what we can find out on the internet. Yeah, so turning to the ever-correct Wikipedia, it's like it was a game system based on the Commodore 64, but it says it never sold well and was quickly discontinued. <laughs> About Atari, it says, Atari's booth was almost impossible to enter. It was as, as if everyone who attended the show decided to check them out at the same time. The official authorized Pac-Man program was introduced, and it sort of compares it a little bit to Jawbreaker. Interestingly, it says the action is a little different from the previous version done for the Atari computer, which it says was Jawbreaker about online systems. It just makes me wonder if they thought that Jawbreaker was an official licensed version or something, but clearly it wasn't because there was that bit about Atari trying to sue online systems. We covered that a bit a while ago. And talk a little bit about the 2600 and Activision and the Magic and other things. It says, so much to see in too little time, but that's why there are two shows a year, so I have until June in the CES in Chicago. And I forget how long the Chicago CES ran, but it, yeah, they're 
there's certainly there's only one CES now, and uh, well, now there's so many other specialty shows as well. So there's a little basic language program called uh, Infinite Precision Multiply. So it goes into some detail about how numbers are stored, and that you know you can overflow stuff. Well, there's a basic routine that allows you to have arbitrary precision multiplications that would overflow you know integers or floating point values. And so it looks like it does all the all the math in strings. So assuming you have a string that fits in memory, you can multiply it. There's a simple basic game called Concentration where you're it's like a memory game. It's like two decks of cards flipped around, and you try to match pairs. So you have to turn over two, and if they match, you take them off the board. And if they don't, you put them back on. And then you have to keep taking turns until you can match pairs at every turn, and then eventually empty the the board of cards. There's a review of Atari Microsoft Basic Part One. It says parts two and three will appear in subsequent issues. So as of this writing of this article, it was only available on disc. I'm not sure if it was available on cartridge or not, but. It uses uh, 11K more RAM than Atari Basic, and it still has to load from disk, so that's a definite disadvantage. But then the advantages, of course, are all the common Microsoft Basic commands. It lists a few of the commands that Microsoft available makes available in this new Basic, and uh, a couple of things that are extensions to Microsoft Basic to do some of the graphics routines. At this point, it doesn't mention its compatibility with Atari Basic, so I'm sure there's since Microsoft Basic and Atari Basic are incompatible in some ways. I'm sure there's some trade-offs here as well. At the closing, it mentions that. It, Another alternative basic is basic A plus, but you know as we as we found out through history, the nothing really dethroned Atari Basic as the basic of choice. At least during that day, you know later on, I think nowadays probably basic XL is is used much more than Atari Basic. There's an article on machine language that says loops and quality. <laughs> it's an interesting way to open up this article. It says program loops seem to be a byproduct of laziness. Not sure about that, but okay. This is when a programmer tires of writing series of instructions, he produces a loop to save coding time and processor memory. So how is that byproduct of laziness? I think that's a, a poor opening sentence there. Yeah, I guess it's really not so much about loops as it is like generalizing the code. Still, I, I can't get past that stupid opening sentence. The kind of idea was if you have similar pieces of code that do similar things, look for a way to generalize it. So to take like input parameters or something and well, in modern language terms anyway, but so in these, in these terms, like have a, a variable stored in a under the register or a zero page place or something, and see if you can make a single routine that does multiple things depending on the input. So hmm, I don't know. I didn't find that to be a very useful article. Here's the inside Atari by Bill Wilkinson. Opens with good news. I've found out how to and where you will be able to obtain copies of Dayray Atari, and it won't even cost you your left thumb. APX now has it available for 19.95 plus shipping. Part number is APX 90008. So in this month, he starts looking at the USR function of BASIC, which is the way to call machine language programs from BASIC. It says, this month, we'll implement a really powerful USR function that will play a song in the background while your BASIC program continues to chug away. So in order to do that, he says he's got to take a detour into the interrupts of the 6502. So there's a table of all the available interrupts. There are three non-maskable interrupts. The reset button, which he says is the only uncontrollable interrupt. Then there's a display list interrupt and the vertical blank interrupt. And he says there are how many? 10, 11 IRQs, which is a break key, any other key, serial input, serial output, serial transmission completed, timers 1, 2, and 4, parallel port A and B, and the break instruction. It says each of the available interrupts with the reset button and the break key has a vector through RAM. So it says to take control of the interrupt, you just put an address of your routine there, and the OS will call you instead of the normal OS routine. Exception being the vertical blank, which is handled slightly differently because there's two of them. And after all, I thought he was going to talk more about the other interrupts, but no, he starts describing the vertical blank interrupt, because that's what his routine is going to use. 
there are two vertical blank interrupts, the immediate and the deferred. And the deferred is generally the one you want to use because the immediate does all the OS processing that's needed every 60th of a second. So there's a listing of this program code for playing sounds and and sort of describes the interface that he's got. It, he calls it play it. He says it's not particularly sophisticated because all the voices must play sounds for the same duration. But still, it does play in the background. And as a note, he says that since I.O. to anything but the screen or keyboard uses the SIO serial bus driver and that uses the sound generators to get its baud rate, so you have to turn off the sound before you do I.O. And as I recall, there's, there were ways to get around that. And I think one of the impressive things was to have music playing during disc I.O. So I don't know the techniques to do that, but I do remember that was a that some things were able to get around that. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. If anybody knows, they can let me know. But I remember that was something that that clever people were able to get around. So it's a very detailed article here. He's got a bunch of assembly ling- language listings and then the basic listings that include the data statements to generate the assembly and the stuff to call, like example programs to call it. And the next article is disk checkup for 2040, 4040, and 8050 disks. What is this? But So I guess they've since they aren't using that style anymore of having the Atari Journal or whatever, they just throw all this stuff together. And so I'm not liking this new format. I like all the Atari Journal where they had the stuff, or the Atari Gazette rather, where they had all the stuff sort of with the Atari all linked together. So, yeah. And then here we go with, well, there's a machine language sort utility from Ron and Lynn Marcuse. And this is an Atari one again. So that's, yeah, not not happy with this organization. Maybe it's just a mistake. We'll look at next month's issue to see what they do. But so they've got a machine language sorting routine. Yep, and then we're back to a pet article and an Atari article. Disk data structures, an interactive tutorial. It's about DOS 2. Sort of explains the structure, the boot sector, the VTOC, the volume table of contents. And aside, I think I recently learned that the uh, Commodore equivalent for the VTOC is called the BAM, Block Allocation Matrix. I don't know. There's an Apple article and a Vic article. Yeah, all this stuff is just kind of scrambled here in the back. Here's an article, Ghost Programming by Eric Wilmunder. We know this name now. This is interesting. It says, I will show how it is possible for 16K Atari users to write and run basic programs, normally requiring 24 or even 32K. Essentially, it's like chaining little programs together. It says, what kept nagging me is there were 50 more lines of initialization codes that were ex- executed only once during my entire program, and after their execution, these lines simply took up precious memory space, which could be used for other purposes. Essentially, it's a utility, it looks like, to save out little bits of basic programs without the line numbers to disk, and then another utility that reads them in and it acts like it's it was typed in, and then it runs that, and then returns code control to the next little bit. So it's a kind of a, a set of little tricks to get around some memory requirement limitations. And my neighbor is mowing his lawn. Which is a good segue into the next Atari article. Actually, no, it's not. But uh, the screen save routine is a little basic program that reads memory and saves your um, bytes out into a, a file. It actually scans the display list and finds out where the memory is located and then saves it all out. But interestingly, I don't see a load routine. Oh, yep, there it is. It does have a load routine as well. So yeah, pretty useful little program. I've got an article on the Superboard 2 computer from Ohio Scientific. Yeah, this is just like random. It's like they took all the old gazettes, kind of threw them up in a random pile, and just started pulling some out. So yes, no like, new format. And that's it. The back cover has an advertisement for the VIC-20 computer. It says it's the friendly computer for $299.95. I guess it was friendly as long as it didn't have business dealings with Jack Trammell. All right, let's take a brief look at computer and video games. This is from March 1982. 75p on the cover price. The cover is a diving propeller. It looks like a World War II propeller plane. Diving and firing on a smoldering, looks like flat-top aircraft carrier. Must be the game they listed as Air Attack. Some other things on the on the title, they have a Star Trek 111-4. And it says game programs for the Sinclair Pet, Apple, Tandy, Atari, and many more. 
just going to look at this one briefly. There's not a lot of stuff, you know, Atari-specific stuff. I do like the arcade coverage they have. There's an article about an arcade competition that they apparently sponsored. Looks like they played, let's see, Asteroids, Defender, and Pac-Man. There were like nine finalists. Uh, Asteroids' high score was 129,000 in uh, 15 minutes of play. That's kind of cool. They list the arcades that the guys normally play at. Said like guys named uh, Vincent Mulholland play, of Buckhurst still plays at the Toys and Tots normally, and Carl Booth, who's a regular at the Gipton Hotels Asteroids Machine. In the Defender competition, Richard Carr plays at the Scarborough Casino Defender Machine, and David Ross from the Isle of Wight plays at South Seas Jubilee's Clarence Parade. Yeah, I remember my old arcades, and if people mention other shows, they can sort of remember the layouts of their neighborhood arcades, and I certainly can place machines in, in the places that I used to play. The regular feature Arcade Action talks about new arcade machines coming and tips and tricks and stuff. There's a blurb about Mooncresta, which I hate. I hate that game. I know it was one of Vic's favorites on Tempest Arcade, but I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of shooting ups anyway, but I particularly dislike that one. There's a bit about Tempest and talking about how Tempest, you can select your skill level. That's a feature I'm surprised that I thought more games would take advantage of. You know, it would allow the expert players to burn through quarters faster because they wouldn't have to spend so much time getting up to the higher levels. So you think that the arcade operators would push for more of that. They certainly cover an impressive variety of machines in this magazine. The first Atari one is looks like it's not really a game, it's a more of a demo. It's called Octadraw. No screenshot as usual, but it appears to be like some sort of a kaleidoscope-like program where it, you draw a pixel and it reflects it on uh, eight times around the screen. There's an article about the game Go, which has been in the news recently since the um, Google machine beat the world champion Go player. It's got the basic rules of Go. It says, well, I don't, it says there's only seven basic rules of Go. One player uses black stones, the other uses white. The board starts empty, and you place stones at intersection of this 19 by 19 grid. Object of the game is to surround territory. So one point is awarded for each vacant intersection surrounded, and also for each opponent stone captured. So you're forbidden to capture your own stones. A player can pass your turn. Game is ended by either resignation or by three consecutive passes, and the player with the most points at the end wins. I don't know if that's it, if there are more rules, but that's what's listed here. So I remember trying to learn it you know, years ago in college, but I never could figured out the strategy or anything so and i don't remember the details at all now but i guess the problem space is so huge that it's that a brute force search can't be used and so that's why it's such a hard computer science problem and a few pages later there's an article about chess and talking this was a little article about making a computer chess player i guess last month and i don't really remember this but they talked about saying an algorithm to use to look a few moves ahead and try to figure out what was the best move so this is kind of extending on that and that's about it for this magazine. On the back cover, there's a ad for Maplin, which is that Atari importer that Kevin interviewed a guy on the Antic Interview series. And I can't remember his name right now, but I remember talk, they're talking about Maplin. Let's check out Computer Gaming World, Volume 2, Number 2. This is from March and April 1982. $2.75 on the color, cover price. The cover is a green hedge maze with sort of a, perhaps a fall scene where the there's like multicolored leaves that fallen on the grass below and there's a guy in a purple suit with a purple top hat walking out of it, but no text on the page. Nothing Atari specific in the table of contents. There's a review of a game called Southern Command. It's for the Apple II, and I wouldn't normally talk about it except the first paragraph. It says, uh, recent issues of computer magazines such as Byte and Creative Computing have been filled with praise for, of all things, a war game. This one called Eastern Front. The large map, ease of play, and speed and skill with which the computer plays make the game a new standard against which others will be judged. If you're an Apple owner, however, you're probably a little envious that the game is only available for Atari computers. You're probably a little envious of other things if you're an Apple II owner. But so no screenshots, but it seemed, it says uh, this game is every bit as good as, as Eastern Front. 
but I, it doesn't really, it's not obvious what kind of game it is. Here's an article by Chris Crawford. So you want to write a computer game. It's got a bunch of tips if you want to write a game. And here's his, uh, his eight tips. It says, first, toss the idea around in your head for at least a month. Think it through. Second, plan the game I.O. before anything else. I.O. is the big bottleneck and dictates what can and can't be done. It says, third, lay out a memory map and stick to it. Decide how much memory your game will take. Less memory may reach a larger audience, but more memory will allow a better game, perhaps. It says, fourth, develop the algorithms for the critical functions of the game. And then fifth, and only then, write the program. He says, are you surprised that writing the program comes so late? Are you surprised I treat it so perfunctorily? If so, you're in for many more surprises when you do the game. All of them rude. <laughs> it says, six, playtest the game several hundred or even a thousand times. Enlist the aid of friends, playtest it for you, and pay attention to their criticism. It says, some of their criticisms will be bad. Ignore those. Some will be good and implement them immediately. And thank your lucky stars for good playtesters. How do you know the difference between good criticisms and bad ones? I don't know. And if you ever find out, please tell me. <laughs> Seventh, polish the game. And eighth, polish it some more. And finally, when you're truly and deeply sick of the game and desperate to get it out of your hair, polish it for at least another month. So that's a, a nice article. Like a lot of good stuff, good in-depth stuff from Chris Crawford. Who obviously, he's sort of dedicated his life to improving game design. There's a review of the game Bug Attack, which is for the Atari and looks like a centipede clone. And that looks like it's about it for Computer Gaming World. Here's Creative Computing, March 1982, Volume 8, Number 3, 2 bucks 95 on the cover price. The cover image, I think, is a still from a, a famous computer animation called The Juggler. It's a guy in a tuxedo, top hat, juggling a green sphere, a blue cube, and a red cone. And presumably going with that, there's a report on SIGGRAPH 81. The little sash they typically put on the top right corner of the cover says, Music for your Apple, Atari, and TRS-80. And that's really the only mention of the Atari on the cover. In the table of contents, there's an article about upgrading RAM for your Atari. It says, Upgrading 8K Atari memory boards. And then there's the Outpost Atari, and that's all that I see in the table of contents, Atari-specific anyway. There's a review of Atari arcade games, state-of-the-art. It's by David Small. It's reviewing Asteroids and Missile Command. He liked Missile Command better than Asteroids, and I did too, actually. The Asteroids on the 800 was also written by Todd Fry, who wrote the Asteroids on the 2600. But the I, I almost like the Asteroids on the 2600 better, even though the 800 has better graphics. Still, the 800 was only written in um, graphics 7. Yeah, I just didn't think the playability is there. There is a, interestingly, there's a vector conversion of Asteroids that plays on the 800. So using essentially the same ROM code as on the, on the arcade machines that will run on the 800. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. There's a battery test article testing alkaline, heavy-duty, and general-purpose and rechargeable batteries for portable games. It's interesting. I wonder what the like power curves would look like of batteries then versus batteries today. I wonder what the battery technology of you know those like standard like C cell, D cell, those kind of batteries. I wonder how much that's changed in the years. Here's the article: New RAMs for old. This is like exchanging like the 8K RAMs on the chips for 16K RAMs. So the 8K RAM boards use these chips called the 4108s which I guess are the same as the 4116 boards, except there are batch problems. So like, apparently the chips that had a bad lower half were marked as 4108B, and the ones that had a bad upper half were 4108A. So apparently all you have to do is like pull out all the 4108s, put in 4116s, and change a few jumper options. Luckily, this is still the day when everything was socketed. And then once that, you do have to do a little soldering of a few points that are laid out here. And apparently plug them back in, test them, and you have 16K modules instead of 8K. There's a big article on the SIGGRAPH conference, which I've actually been to once. It was in the 90s, but it would have been great to see some of this stuff. This would have just been mind-blowing, you know, compared to the personal computers at the time versus when I saw it. 
you know, I, I thought it was a time of quake, you know, we're still, we're kind of used to 3D stuff now, but in here, in 81, seeing all these, or 82, seeing all these three-dimensional rendered images would have just been phenomenally unusual. In this article, there's some shots of uh, some, like, Landsat computer images and you know, pretty high-resolution graphics and uh, editing screens that would have just been, again, just, like, mind-blowing. You know, so unusual, there's a, a whole page taken up with a glossary of 3D terms and regular graphics terms, too, like stuff that's common now, anti-aliasing, you know, texture, surface, ray tracing, hence terms that have, like, since fallen out of favor, like fong shading, which is a type of shading that is, you know, is, is not really used anymore because there's so much more realistic stuff, but it's shading based on the reflection, the angle reflection of the rays coming from a light source. I guess that kind of shading is still used, but there's more, you know, there's diffuse and ambient shading and uh, all sorts of, you know, fog effects and stuff that makes things more realistic than was they could even think of back then. But it covers about 15 pages in the magazine, so it's a it's a nice summary if you're interested in the state of SIGGRAPH in 1982. And I guess I forgot to mention this. SIGGRAPH is the special interest group of the ACM. The ACM is the Association for Computing Machinery, which is kind of like a national group of uh, computer professional type people here in the U.S. Continuing on here in the magazine, there's several articles about computing for people with physical limitations. There's one about programming with uh, using a joystick and a fire button to select, um, you know, characters and stuff. And even there's a another picture where they use like I don't know if you remember those joysticks we talked about the the shtick. Kind of a, like the Mercury Switch joystick. There's one where a picture of a like strapping one of those to a headband and using that as the as the joystick direction and using a breath switch as the fire button. There's an article on using lookup tables to do your high res graphics mapping on the Apple II. It's kind of cool that we don't have to worry about lookup tables, do we? We just blast the graphics right where they're supposed to go. There's an article about simplistic codes and breaking them, talking about like substitution ciphers and um, like XOR. So very simplistic codes and it kind of it kind of points to frequency analysis as a way to break some of these things. Another article about generating pseudorandom numbers kind of related to the code stuff. We've talked about pseudorandom number generators before. You know, these kind of polynomial counters that repeat on this really long period, but if the period is long enough, then it's, it seems like the numbers are pretty random. Here's the Outpost Atari by Dave and Sandy Small. Its title is Graphics 7 Plus. See, it's interesting why Basic didn't give you the Graphics 7 Plus as a direct command. You know, going from Graphics 7 to Graphics 8 is a big step. And Graphics 7 Plus, of course, gives you twice the vertical resolution as Graphics 7, but you still have the four colors. So it's really the most, I think, most useful graphics mode on the Atari. So an easy way to get Graphics 7, well, not an easy way, but probably the easiest way is to just create a Graphics 8 mode and then have a little program to go through the display list and change all the 15s to 14. And indeed, that's what they do here, although they take a few steps to do it. And so they show just converting, if you take the Graphics 7 and convert it to 7 Plus, then you lose half the the screen, so you only have graphics on the top half of the screen because there's only 96 graphics 7 plus or Antic 14 um, lines. So really, yeah, you have to start with a graphics 8 uh, display list and then convert those to graphics 7 plus. Or of course, you can create the display list on your own. But complicated when using it from Basic, if you convert a graphics 8 screen to graphics 7 plus, Basic still thinks you're drawing in with 300, 320 pixels across. There's a memory location you can set that'll tell Basic to draw it in the graphics 7 color scheme, you know, with with 160 across, but then it also assumes that it's only 96 pixels high. So you, if you try to draw two stuff down the bottom half of the screen, it will give you an out-of-range error. And it goes on and says that because the OS routine is in ROM, you can't really change that. So they provide a couple user um, assembly language subroutines where you can draw two and stuff using the graphics 7 uh, dimensions. So yeah, very useful graphics mode. A lot of a lot of really good games use graphics 7 rather than graphics 8. You know, graphics 8 with the artifacting is is 
use quite a bit from the ports, like Apple II games ported over the, to the Atari will generally use graphics 8. One of the ones I remember is Droll. And interestingly about that game, you can always tell that they use the XOR method of drawing because when two of the sprites cross over each other, you get these kind of combined colors as they pass through each other. You know, one isn't drawn on top of the other one. Now, typically ports from the Apple II don't use any of the player missile graphics or any of the specific stuff that the Atari has for, to make graphics easier and better. Got to go to the lowest common denominator with that old Apple II programming. That's it for the Apple II Atari. The next article of interest is uh, Intelligent Computer Games by David Levy. So this has been a series where he's been trying to talk about you know computer players of games, the computer opponents. And this time he's going through dominoes. He says it's the final article in this series. And yeah, he goes over a bunch of playing strategies and how to possibly implement that in the, a computer opponent. And that's it for the Creative Computing. Next, we'll look at the Micro 6502 Journal. All right, this is Micro, the 6502-6809 Journal, number 46 for March 1982. The U.S. Canada edition is $2.50. The international edition is $2.95. And in the U.K., it's 80p. It's the usual style cover. It's a solid color. This is kind of orangey, kind of a burnt orange. Hook'em horns. The title is in a sort of a brownish color. And in the, the center, sort of half is the computer screen where you're kind of sitting inside the computer looking out. There's a keyboard underneath you. And they're looking at a fire scene with a bunch of burning stuff and people holding umbrellas in the foreground. Kind of odd. They don't look like firefighters. But it looks like they might be standing in water. So maybe the firefighters are like aerial firefighters dropping water on top of something and they're getting rained on. I don't know. It's unclear. It doesn't seem to match with anything. The uh, only text on the cover says an OSI feature. And below that says math applications, a disassembler for the 6809 and IO expansion for the AIM. So not looking like we're going to have a whole ton of Atari stuff here. Table of contents bears that out. There's no Atari stuff listed in the table of contents, so this might be a quick one. Although there are a couple of the math application articles that I'll probably cover. Oh, I guess it does list the from here to Atari column, so we'll definitely look at that. There's an article on numerical solutions of differential equations. talks about the Runge-Kutta method, which I remember learning. It says they aren't going to derive the Runge-Kutta method. As I recall, it's... Um, and they, they have a little explanation if it's very terse. But in a differential equation, it'll, it gets the slope of a, a function. And if you have some initial conditions, you can get values at points, then you get the slopes of each of those points. And if you take like small enough steps, you can get kind of a, a slope and then the next value. And you use that next value as input to the, the original function, and you kind of like iterate over this and find like intersections. Essentially, you're trying to find the zeros of this function. But there's no algebraic way to get to determine from the equation itself where the zeros are, so you have to approximate so you can use the slopes to kind of figure out where it might cross the zero axis and yeah basically it's an iterative procedure you can tell it's been a while since i've uh, done this but anyway it's got some basic code to, to do runkakata or if you want to impress your friends you can call it the rk method see what you learn if you wait almost like four months to hit, to get this next podcast episode next article is about the lagrange interpolating polynomial this is to fit a bunch of data points it's not like a best fit or anything but if you have like n data points, you can fit a polynomial through all those points. That's of degree n minus 1. So if you have three points, you can fit a quadratic curve to it. If you have four points, you can fit a cubic curve to it. It's not like, you know, least squares or something where you're trying to find a best fit. You're just finding a polynomial that goes through all these points. And so there's a basic program here that'll do that for you. Next article is sine of x the hard way. So this is using, it's describing how that you implement a sine function. So there's many ways to approximate the sine function. One of these is use the Taylor series expansion of the sine. The Taylor series is one way to approximate the value of a transcendental function like sine or you know cosine or tangent or whatever. Actually, Taylor series can 
expand any function, but if it's a non-algebraic function like transcendental or something, it'll give you an infinite series. But the nice thing about it is, is the most of the detail is held in the in the earliest terms, and so you don't have to do this series forever. You just take the first like five terms, and then it'll give you a really good approximation for you know, sine or whatever. So probably happily for you, the derivation of the Taylor series is beyond the scope of this podcast, but there's a way to they um, give you a little example of a little basic program to to do the uh, sine function. And, and so this is essentially how it does in like the Atari ROMs. And you can show it says a little basic implementation and you can walk through that if you're interested. Okay, that's the last of math for today. So homework's due next Thursday. Here's From Here to Atari by James Caporell. And next month, Antic will debut, Antic Magazine. So I wonder how many more articles James Caporell has submitted to Micro. Of course, you know, the publishing schedule is, you know, months delayed. So there could be a, a stockpile of these things to go through. Or they might even change columnists. I'm not sure. We'll see what happens. So last issue, there was talk of disk drives here. And he said, apparently there were problems with some disk drives sold prior to like late 81. Apparently the Western Digital Disk Controller chip number 1771 provided some bad performance. And I guess there's a replacement. Percom had a replacement board. And he goes through some instructions how to upgrade that. I'm assuming he's talking about the A10 disk drive, but I don't see it specifically called out here. I mean, this stage in early 82, I don't think there were any um, secondary disk drive makers uh, for the Atari. By the time I got my computer in 83, of course, there were, there were many ones. I had a track drive. I think the Indus GT was coming out about that time. Percom had some drives. And, but yeah, I don't know when any of these came out. So if you know, drop me a line and let me know. And then there's a bunch of stuff for the OSI machines. So we're going to skip over most of that. And after all that stuff, there's an article about a disassembler for the 6809, which I normally wouldn't talk about it either, but I've included a bunch of disassemblers in Omnivore. I found a nice Python framework for disassembly, and uh, I added some code for disassembling like the 65816 and 6502 with some, the undocumented opcodes, so I added a bunch of stuff. Uh, at this point, I think as I released this, I have not publicly released that version of Omnivore yet, so it's not quite out, but it should be out shortly. And I'll announce that on Atari Age as well. It's not necessarily of interest to you since it's not the 6502, but still, uh, there's definitely... I'm trying to make Omnivore a bit general so it can maybe edit MAME-ROMs or whatever, other systems, you know. So having a disassembly framework has is, is really been pretty cool. Anyway, this is a 6809 disassembler in BASIC. <laughs> Here's an interesting ad. The American Software Club. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of... Um, the Columbia Record Club, remember that thing where you would sign up for this thing and you'd get, like, to choose some number of records or cassettes every month, and the ones you didn't like, you had to send back. So, you don't, you know, if you didn't want to send it back and pay postage or whatever, you'd have to keep them and pay the money. So, it was kind of a thing you had to keep up with what you wanted every month, and you had to check your certain things because you were forced to buy a minimum. But here, I guess it's not like that. It's just a, <laughs> it says it's a free membership. And there's no minimum order. So yeah, I guess it's exactly like the Columbia Record Club, except it's not at all like it. Just the name evokes the memory for me. There's an ad for Nibble Magazine, which at some point I'll have to take a look at as like a, you know, guest magazine just to see what it's like. I know a lot of people of the Apple II community um, like Nibble. And that's about it for this issue. Next issue, they say, is a lot of 6809 stuff. So that won't be a whole lot of interest to us, I don't think. Now let's take a listen to Michael Glazer looking at Softside Magazine. Hey, Pop Peoples. Welcome again to this month's coverage of Southside Magazine, number 42. 42. It's March 1982, volume 5, number 6. The price is still $3. The cover features several monochromatic two-dimensional chess pawns of assorted sizes. Printed right on one of the pawns is the word Hexapon, which is one of the games featured in this magazine. 
Under the Hints and Enhancements section, Atari Microtext. Bob Cowan of Pensacola, Florida has provided a few lines of code for the Simple Text Editor Microtext 1.0 to allow it to print to the Atari 820 printer. Atari Titan. Gregory A. Lovecamp of Beardstown, Illinois has two editions. The first is for issues 39's Titan, which requires the player to type Go to 300 while playing the game. He resolves this manual process by making the cursor rest on the section of screen text that says Go to 300. He then causes the code to press the return key, which initiates the command to jump to line 300. It's a clever solution. Atari Database. Michael Fink of Nashville, Tennessee offers some memory-saving basic suggestions, one of these being the use of the question mark instead of using the print statement. Softside points out that the question mark is tokenized and takes up the same amount of memory as the print statement. Entertainment Tomorrow, The Third Dimension, by Alan L. Wold and Fred Dignazio. This article begins by describing the holographic chess game between C-3PO and Chewbacca. I think they mean R2-D2 and Chewbacca. They describe the setting of the game, but spoil the fantasy by stating it was all done with trick photography, and the chances of it becoming a reality will likely never happen. They go on to discuss in great detail how hologram is created and how it could be implemented in several types of games. Of course, um, you know Microsoft is one company that has sort of solved this issue by producing the HoloLens, and if that's as close as they come to the Star Wars game, I'm pretty satisfied. Although the article discusses using holograms to immerse a person in a 3D world, several projects such as the Oculus Rift, Sony's PlayStation VR, and Samsung's Gear VR offer something very close to the version, but not truly a hologram. The Sensuous Programmer, The Eleventh Hour, by J. Arthur J. discusses the level of graphics the TRS-80, Apple II, and Atari can produce and how to produce simple examples. As expected, the Atari comes out on top as they discuss all of the graphic modes, as well as they make mention of the player missile graphics. Softside did previously say they start covering the Coco, but in this article it just refers to the TRS-80 Model 1. Kind of a shame. Hexapon by Carl Bevington, translated by Alan J. Zett. Hexapon is a simple marker game for the 16K Atari, Apple, and TRS-80, which is a program that learns from its previous mistakes. It was originally devised by Martin Gardner and published in Scientific America in 1962. The game consists of a board that is made up by a 3x3 grid. Each player gets three markers. Even player markers are placed along the bottom of the grid, while the computers are placed along the top. In the Atari version, the computer markers are Fuji symbols. Human goes first by moving the marker up one space. The computer will randomly take its move based on a list of possible legal moves. The player will alternate moves until the game is won. Although I didn't get a chance to play this game, I found it more interesting from a programmer's perspective due to its AI aspects. Those who did play the game downloaded it from Atari Mania, and 15 of them gave it a 4 out of 10. Not bad. The Curse of the Pharaoh, Atari DV game, by Peter Kirsch. This 32K Atari digital version game, not to be confused with the excellent 1983 Synapsis software game Pharaoh's Curse, is a simple text graphic adventure. Enter the tomb to attempt to end the ancient curse by recovering the lost rubies and see them return to their rightful owner. On Atari Mania, they gave it a 5 out of 10 with one vote. International Bridge Contractors by Philip Case. This is 16K or 24K with disc. Well, here's an interesting one. You play as an office manager of IBC Incorporated. You have lofty goals and wish to strive to be the chairman of the board. This is essentially a bridge manager simulator. It has some very simple graphics, but it got a 5.5 out of 10 on Atari Mania with two votes. Outer Space Attack by Sheldon Lehman. This article states that this game requires 16K of ROM, but since that doesn't make any sense, I think they mean 16K of RAM, or 24K with disc. It also requires a joystick.
This is another Space Invaders game and probably on par with the 2600. But it got a 6.9 out of 10 on Atari Mania with 7 votes, so it might be worth checking out. Review. K-Razy Shootout by Sheldon Lehman. I remember this game mostly for the K-Dash in the name. They also had a few other games that start with the K-Dash. It was the 80s, so I guess everything was kind of K-Razy sometimes. K-Razy Shootout, if you pronounce it that way, by K-Byte is essentially a Berserk clone, but instead of Evil Auto, it's replaced with a timer bar at the top of the screen. The game was a $50 cartridge. Converted day's prices, that's $144. That can't be right. Here's a trivia fact. This was their first game and the first company to offer a ROM cartridge outside Atari. The review was mostly positive. The game had a lot of replayability. The drawings seemed to get smarter as the game progressed, and there was a nice recap after each level. On the negative side, Sheldon found the graphics and sound to be good, but not great. The sectors are a little plain, and your rank can drop due to low performance. Uh, this same year, Atari released Berserk for the 5200, although it did look a lot like the arcade game. Comparing the two side-by-side, Shootout is a superior game in my opinion. Unfortunately, it was never officially released for the Atari 8-bit computer. Under the new product section, Data Saver by Carista Systems Incorporated. This was a surprise to me. Data Saver is a battery backup system. It's reasonable to assume these things were out there, but I'd never actually seen one in the wild. Dragon's Eye, an epic game by Automated Simulations. This is a 32K fantasy role-playing game where the player is challenged to find a magical item named the Dragon's Eye in approximately one-half real-time hours. When you find the gen, return it to Fell City where you started. You can choose from 16 characters and can gain many magical abilities. You also have the choice of many medieval weapons. In addition, you're provided with an on-screen map that points out locations, items, and other info. Can you defeat the dragons, vampires, and other foul creatures of this world to recover your prized treasure? Well, that concludes my coverage of Softside this month. Rosin working hard on Omnivore, which appears to be the Atari's 8-bit equivalent to a developer's Swiss army knife. It looks pretty impressive. Since you've been busy with that, who knows the next time you'll hear my dulcet tones. Oh wait, you can hear me host the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast with Bill Kendrick and David Protestari. Now back to Rob. Yep, I definitely encourage you to listen to the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. They just posted on their Facebook page that they had finished recording their next episode, so hopefully I'll be out here soon. But I am not one to be complaining about the speed at which other people produce their own podcasts. Yeah, since I've had a bit of a delay here. And speaking of delay, I've had an interview with Mark Reed, the author of Getaway, did that late last year, and it's only now that I'm releasing it with this episode due to my hiatus and working on Omnivore and stuff. But before we get to the interview, let's talk a little bit about Getaway itself. Getaway was programmed by Mark Reed in 1982 and published by APX, and is the winner of the 1983 Atari Star Award. It's a one-player game using the joystick controller. You are a robber. You drive a car around a city with the object of collecting loot while avoiding the police who are chasing you. It's a really large scrolling area, so it, the manual says it covers a set of 35 individual screens, so it's a really, really big area. The streets themselves are laid out in just north and south, east and west directions, Only four, so it's a four-way control on the joystick. You push the joystick in whatever direction you want to move, and if you hit the button, you'll stop. You start out at a home base, that's your safe haven. If you're sitting there, you can't get arrested by the police, unless you sit there for too long, and if you sit, start sitting there for too long, it'll flash, and then it'll go away, and then the police will be able to arrest you. So you're only given a limited amount of safety time. The loot will be scattered randomly around the city, so you got to drive around and find it, and it will be very beneficial to learn the layout of the city, because there's places that you can get trapped. There's, there's long roads that you don't have any way to, to get off the road other than turning around. So there's a few cul-de-sacs, places that you can get trapped in. There's some bridges, you know, long bridges that are also good for ambushes. 
And you've got to find the gas stations because not only do you have a bunch of police after you, you also have a limited supply of gas. So your gas gauge goes down continually and you've got to find the gas stations and, and refuel. And you can collect as much loot as you want, but if you don't get it back to your hideout, it doesn't count. Because if you're arrested, then all that loot goes away and you have to start from scratch again. So the screen shows on the top screen, it shows how many cars you've got left and the amount of money you stashed back at your hideout. The bottom part of the screen shows your fuel gauge and the amount of cash you've collected on your current adventure out through the city. In addition, at the very top right of the screen is a symbol that shows you what you need to collect in order to go on to the next level. The normal loot that you're trying to gather are just dollar signs that appear in the roads. But there are additional things. There's an armored car that is randomly driving around the city. And there are other diamonds and hearts and things that appear that are also the prizes that you can um, need to collect to get up to the next level. So to collect any loot, you just run over it or chase it down if it's the armored van. Any of the dollar signs that you run over, they are added to your cash, but they're not actually added to the stash until you drive it back to the hideout. The manual says the more cash you're carrying, the more that the police target you. When the police are close, you'll hear the sirens, and when they're nearby but off the screen, you'll see these little indicators that show you where on the screen that they're, they would come into the road. The manual calls this a radar blip. The armored van also has a little radar blip as well. The police flash, and the armored van doesn't, so that's how you can differentiate those. They, otherwise, they look pretty similar. You have one day to complete each level, it says, and as, as night falls, the police get more dangerous. They get more interested in catching you. And then as the game goes further on in a day, they start putting up roadblocks, which will look like a big X in the road, and then you can't go through those. There are also stop signs that appear, and if you run through a stop sign it without stopping, it uh, takes all your cash somehow. I, don't, I actually don't know in the game world what that mechanic would be, but that's what happens in the game. There are eight levels in the game, and the, the police go at the same speed as you, so you can keep in front of them as long as you don't make any mistakes or multiple police don't corner you or trap you somehow. One of the things I like about the control of the game is that if you're traveling one direction, you can push the joystick in the direction of the next intersection before you get there, and your car will zip to the, ne the next intersection as fast as it can. That's the mechanic sort of like Pac-Man. It's the mechanic that didn't work if you listen to the Ten Pence Arcade when they talked about Ladybug. One of the reasons I didn't like Ladybug was because you could get stuck between passages, whereas this mechanic where you can sort of pre-send the direction that you're going to turn next, I think is very useful. All this is a fun game. The controls work well. The map is huge. You really have to learn the map. I didn't really start to do well until I figured out the whole lay of the city and, you know, know where the dead ends were and, and know how to get back to my hideout. That was, you know, very important. Figuring out where the gas stations were, that kind of stuff. It's worth just trying to drive around for a little bit just to kind of figure it out, not worrying about your score or anything. The police don't seem to track you very well at the beginning anyway, so it's kind of easy just to drive around when you don't have any loot to worry about. Well, here, let's get in the interview with Mark Reed, where I learned a bunch more about Getaway, and we also talked about some of his other programs that he wrote. And then it gave me the hook in order to actually start working on Omnivore. So here's my interview with Mark Reed. This took place on October 1st, 2015. In terms of the Atari, how did you get involved with the uh, Atari computer itself? Was that your first computer, or had you had other ones? Um, yeah, it was my first personal computer. I, uh, I've been interested in computers for a long time. I'm, uh, I'm 58 years old now, and uh, I was uh, actually, the first computer I ever had was uh, made of plastic, <laughs> something called a uh, Digicomp 1. Uh, you can find it on Wikipedia. That, that it's like a little kit that you put together, and it had like a three-bit uh, register. Oh, wow. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you can put your program by putting these little plastic pegs in it, and you'd actually push a little slide back and forth. 
to go through the cycles of the process, or I guess you'd call it. And then you could program to do things like count from zero to seven, <laughs> forward or backward, you know? <laughs> add and subtract, or that kind of thing. You know, so it's very primitive. But uh, that was the first introduction to computers I had, and I did a science fair project on computers, that kind of thing. You know, and yeah, was into into the uh, calculators when they first came out, you know, four-digit calculator, four-function you know, calculator, that was like a big thing. And then the Hewlett-Packard calculators. And and uh, then I just, you know, just naturally as the personal computers came along, I thought that I actually uh, worked at uh, a job when I was in uh, college. I was in the co-op program. Oh, uh-huh. And one quarter I was, work- I was working in a, a design data lab, and they had a PDP computer, which was a, one of the first mini computers right, that had yeah. a terminal. And up to that point in, in school, all the computer program I'd done was in Fortran, and you you know, you'd, you'd use a card punch. You'd punch instructions on cards, and then you'd hand a deck of cards through a window and come back a couple hours later and get your printout. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that wasn't very exciting, and uh, so when I got to play around with this uh, PDP that had a terminal, and you could type your program right in on the screen, and then type run and see the results right away. You know that really kind of got me hooked on it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, there was, you know, back, back then there was a uh, Radio Shack had something called the TRS-80 that was in, in their stores, and I'd go in the store and play around with it, but it was it was too expensive. You know, I really couldn't afford one. And uh, yeah. there was a Commodore Pet computer and the Apple II was just coming out then, and you know, the, I was just kind of uh, following them. Why there was actually even there was one computer that I was thinking about getting, and I I bought the instruction manuals for it and wrote some programs without even having the computer. Oh yeah, just on paper. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, just on paper. I don't even remember what the name of that computer was, but I remember it had the keyboard and monitor all built in. It actually had a color screen, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. And then, uh, and I've been, I've had an Atari, uh, uh, the uh, video game system, the VCS system, for mm-hmm. quite a while. You know, enjoyed that. And so when Atari said they were coming out with a, uh, a home computer, I really got me interested. And uh, I saw the, you know, Things in read things in magazines about it. You know the personal computer magazines that were they're out back then. I was really reading a lot of those, and I remember reading a description of of a demonstration they gave to a bunch of uh, people in the tech industry, and they they showed the Star Raiders program on screen, talking about how everybody's jaw was dropping at <laughs> seeing that that happen. And that you know that's well, I, that's the one I want to get then. So. Uh, I was actually in New York City on a vacation with my parents, and we went to a computer store, and they had one there. And so uh, my folks ended up buying me one for a uh, kind of an early Christmas present. Oh, while you were on uh, vacation? <laughs> while we were on vacation, yeah. That's uh, funny. So that's how I ended up getting the, the first one, yeah. It was Atari 800. And, of course, got the Star Raiders cartridge. So uh, that's really how I got interested in Atari. Yeah, that was an amazing game. And, and yeah, it really was. Yeah, and it, that that was such an early game too. I mean, when it, that was game was released right when the computers were out, and it's it was still just yeah stunning. 
Yeah, it was. It, it really kind of demonstrated, you know, the sort of thing that could be done with the graphics hardware that was in the Atari, which was a lot more advanced, at least for doing video games than any of the other ones that were out at the time. Yeah, and did, so, did uh, you sort of immediately think, oh, you know, maybe I can start writing games? Did, is that, you know, one of the things you want to do with programming when you got the Atari was to try games? Well, yeah, I wanted to program it. I wasn't, you know, not specifically thinking of games. You know, I was, you know, playing around with, you know, things just to see what would, you know, what I could make come up on the screen, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and program some simple, I guess you'd call them games, doing that. And uh, I, uh, and then I, then really it was when Atari uh, came out with their, uh, Atari Program Exchange. You know, I had written a few kind of games in BASIC just for my own amusement. Uh, one that was, uh, was like a solitaire card game where you could play Klond- Klondike Solitaire, and it was real primitive. It didn't really actually show cards. It just showed, like, you know, a three and the heart symbol because they had the hearts and spades and clubs and diamonds were characters built into the character set, you know, so... Yeah, just begging to be used for a card game. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so I, you know, I'd written that game, and I wrote another game that I called Munchies, which was basically just a ripoff of Pac-Man. And uh, the, those were in uh, in basic. And so when the program exchange came out, I thought, hmm, you know, maybe I'll just send those in. So I sent them in, and they actually accepted Solitaire. And I thought, wow, that's cool. You know, and the other one, they said they it was too close to the Pac-Man. You know, so it had been, uh, I guess. Uh, copyright issue. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, that really got me, you know, the fact that they actually accepted Solitaire, you know, and we're going to start sending me royalty checks for it, that really got me interested in learning more about it. And, uh, yeah. I wrote another game uh, called Downhill, which is kind of a, yeah, the, uh, the skiing game program. Yeah, it just it was still pretty crude graphics, you know, just looking straight down from above and trees going by and that sort of thing. And it actually used the paddle controller to, that they that would work with the Atari. It's the same one that would work with the DCS video game system to turn your player back and forth. I saw that actually. I don't know. I don't know if you've seen some of the websites there, but there's one called Atari Mania that I use a lot that has. That's five of your games. Oh, five of them, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I I don't see uh, the I don't know if did you ever end up releasing the um, the Munchies game anywhere or? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I sent it into Atari, but uh, you know, I had a, written a I wrote a bunch of games in Basic that were you know kind of primitive. There was one called Fire, I think, where you put out forest fires and uh, yeah. a lunar lander kind of game, and I put. The, I can't remember now. I may have. I put those all on like a disc as a combination thing. And I don't think I sent them into Atari, so I'm not exactly sure how they got into the public domain. I know I've given them away to people and things like that, so somebody may have uploaded them. Yeah, yeah the, uh, as as you might know, the piracy scene was quite active on the Ataris, and so it might have just spread that way. But, yeah, they're... Um, oh, yeah. I was guilty of that too. You know, we'd, we'd all get together. People who who had Atari computers, you know, would you know, we'd get together and oh, what, look at what have you got? Oh, look what I've got, you know, and you know, using our little tape recorders and <laughs> copy things back and forth.
Yeah. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, there was a lot of camaraderie in the, in that early scene, you know, when it was really, it was almost like, I guess, what I imagine the ham radio scene was like, you know, it was uh, people who were interested in the technology and just what you could what you could do with it. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, but the, in the downhill game, I sent that in to APX and, they they said they they liked it. They wanted to put it in their catalog, but the you know, I'd written it in basic, and so the clock the time the you run down the hill, the it only had tenths of a second. You know, it did seconds and tenths of a second, but basic just wasn't fast enough to track it any more accurately than that. And they said they really wanted it to have hundreds of a second. So that's when I had to start getting into uh, machine language oh. and learning about the, you know, writing in machine language or assembly language. And I wrote a, it, the Atari basic had a function where you could actually call a machine language subroutine from the basic program. So I just wrote a little machine language subroutine that would operate the clock basically. And then the program would call that subroutine to, to keep the clock updated and that, so that was my introduction to machine language. And I was surprised it really wasn't as hard as I imagined it was going to be. You know, and in a way, machine language was was really, really simple. You know, was, there were only so many instructions, and, and that's yeah. kind of what made it difficult because you had to use a lot of instructions to accomplish even simple things. You know, there was no you know floating point arithmetic or anything like that, and you know, it's just just registers and memory yeah. locations and. But uh, it, it was uh, it was fascinating, and and I'd had the idea for the you know, I really you know that that downhill game was the first one that I uh, wrote that had used scrolling at all, and uh, used to it, it was even though it used fine scrolling mm-hmm. since it was written in basic it was still kind of jerky you know because of the speed at which the basic could update the the registers yeah and so uh, I was really wanting to try out the horizontal and vertical scrolling and fine scrolling and write it in assembly language so that it would you know, smoothly move the picture around. And so that's sort of where uh, Getaway got started. I was wanting to use an idea, come up with an idea where I could use that scrolling and and I can't, you know, it was kind of going back to the, the Munchies game, you know, using the Pac-Man thing with the little things moving around the, the screen. Oh, sure, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and I, I actually also, I, I'm not even sure if I was conscious of it at the time, but uh, as a child, I'd had a game called uh, Getaway Chase Game. It was a, it was like a plastic uh, track, like sort of model of a town, and you had two little battery powered cars that ran around on the track, <laughs> and uh, two people sat on either side of it. You had two little switches sort of like on a train set, you know, where you could, you could switch where it, the car would come to a, a, a junction and you could make it go either one way or the other, depending on which way you press the switch. Uh-huh. And it even had little cardboard, cardboard buildings, you know, that you punched out and folded up and set around the, you know, scenery on the thing. And, <laughs> and the object of the game was to, was to catch, you know, two people would run around on the track and you'd try and bump the other one, from behind by, you know, out, out maneuvering by switching your cars. And so that, that was kind of a big influence, I think, on, on it, even though I hadn't really thought about it at the time. So anyway, I got to work on 
on making that game, and that was, that took a lot of a lot of my spare time. Uh, right, I was writing it all out, you know, on on paper, writing out the instructions, and oh, wow, yeah. worked out all the characters on graph paper and converted those into into hexadecimal. You know, to type type that in. And yeah. My wife was actually knew how to touch type, so she did a lot of the typing. And the, oh, really? <laughs> Collaboration for me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but it was all in your spare time then. Yeah, yeah, I was working as a chemical engineer and in uh, research and development. So this was all just in the evenings and weekends, and I'd work on it intensely for a while, and then kind of get burnt out and not work on it or get stuck on something, you know. And it took me about a, a year, I think, from the time I first started on it. Oh wow! In fact, we uh, we went on a trip to California uh, with my family, and we had family that lived out there, and we drove. Uh, they met us in LA and we drove up the coast to San Francisco. And so, you know, one thing I wanted to do on the way, I said, let's, we, you know, we're going to be going right past for Atari's headquarters. I want to <laughs> stop by there and see this place. And so we did, we went to Atari and I found the APX uh, building and went in there, you know, and oh, really? had some people there. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I had the, I had the, uh, Printout for getaway in my suitcase. You know, it was big. It's about 200 page of assembly language <laughs> printout, and I was still working on it at the time. But I was telling them about it. You know, and uh, they were like, "Oh, it sounds like too much like Pac-Man. I don't know if we could do that." You know, but I don't know. It's going to be different. You know, <laughs> uh, I sent it in to them later, and uh, they accepted it. And I, I had also downhill had won a uh, one of their quarterly prizes. They had you know. You, the, for the catalog each quarter they would give out prizes uh, and and merchandise you know you get uh, Atari basically give you so much money and then you could order Atari merchandise from them and games and whatever so I was able to get a disk drive with the prize from downhill and that helped a lot in putting getaway together oh had it, had you been just using a cassette recorder before that I've been using a cassette recorder, yeah. And uh, when I was drawing the map for Getaway, you know, I wrote all the, the the code and the character map. I worked out on paper and typed them in. But then when it came to actually creating the map, I was like, this is going to be this going to be a pain trying to type all that in, figure out how, you know figure it out even you know on paper. Yeah, because it's huge. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a basic program that would let me uh, scroll around on the screen and draw the map basically on the screen, just you know, use the joystick and, and move around on the map and then push the, the joystick button to cycle through the, or no, no, I use the keys on the keyboard. That's right. You hit the key on the keyboard and it would, you know, pop up the character and, you know, yeah. so I could put the trees and the, and the roads and the buildings and all, and just kind of draw them on screen. So that, that was definitely big. And so I guess it's sort of, you know, a, a uh, a development tool. You know, I created one of my own development tools. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine trying to do that that huge map on paper. Yeah, that would have been... Yeah, I mean, because uh, I kept changing it around, you know, and you know, that's not going to work. You know, I moved things around, and then I would have had to go back and reconvert it into hexadecimal and type it. There's just too much chance for error yeah. in that process. So. Yeah, did you have to did you have to play test the map a lot to kind of come up with the final configuration for the the streets? I did, yeah, I did. But, you know, not a not a whole lot of changes were required, but there were some things that I ended up thinking, no, oh, that's you know, that's not going to work, and uh, I ended up putting uh, adding the one kind of dead end thing in there just to create an area where you could sort of get 
trapped and uh, I moved some things moved some things around but uh, it wasn't big changes from the first version that I, that I laid out I guess mm-hmm. but uh, I uh, yeah sent that off to Atari and uh, they uh, I was really you know thrilled with that you know how much they liked it and there they were they wanted to, they made a poster for it, had an artist that worked for them draw up a poster of the map and uh, they uh, were going to translate it. They, they did translate it into French and Spanish to you know, just change the few words that were, <laughs> that were in the, into French and Spanish to those markers and they were, put, they were getting ready to put it on cartridge too. Oh, were they? And wow. working on how, how to uh, reconfigure it so it would fit on a cartridge. And that, one of the things I th- that uh, actually one of my proudest moments was they uh, they got a call from them and saying you know, we just we just tried tested the game out and this is when they were translating it and they were going to put it use it and uh, sell it in Europe and in Europe they have a different uh, TV format you know it's the PAL versus right, NTSC yeah. and they said when we run it on a Atari 800 that works in Europe. Uh, the collision detection doesn't work. They, you know, when you when the huh. police cars catch the, the other car, they just go right through them, and everything just keeps on going. It wasn't, <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my goodness, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, and I didn't have a PAL system right. to test it on, so I just sit there one night scratching my head trying to imagine what was going on with it. And finally, dawned on me that there's more scan lines in the PAL system, and the way the the way the program worked, it was synchronized to the vertical blank interrupt on the screen, so that it, mm-hmm. the uh, the main event loop would execute at at sixty frames a second. Basically, you know, it was synchronized to the way that the the uh, electron beam scans down a TV screen. Yeah, using the vertical and blank calls, or were you using a timer or some sort? I was using the there was the, the Atari hardware actually had what's called a vertical blank interrupt, and so yeah. you could create a subroutine that would get called every time it hit the vertical blank, and so that's what, how I synchronized it to the screen. Okay, yeah, and and then it would go through the code where it would, you know, check your joystick and see which way you were going and move all the characters and do this and that, and then. Uh, and then it would check for whether there was a collision or not. And it just so happened that on the American TV systems, enough time had elapsed since the beginning of the of the frame. By the time I got around to checking the subscription, the electron beam was down in the lower half of the screen, so the collision had already happened. Oh. And uh, with the PAL system, there was enough time. You know, my my routine that executed every once every frame would complete before it got to the middle of the screen, and so the collision hadn't actually happened yet. So huh. there was no, you know, it didn't it didn't fire off the collision detection. So I just had to put a a delay, put just a little delay loop in, so that it would slow it down a little bit to wait, and then before it did the collision detection to make sure for PAL systems that it got past the middle of the screen before it checked to see if anything had hit the car. <laughs> and that, and that, that, you know, not having a thing to test it out with and all, that was, uh, it was all just uh, imagining, you know, what was going on. Yeah, that's, that's a hard way to do bugs. <laughs> yeah, it was. And uh, so I created that, you know, made a change and sent it back into them and said, yep, that fixed it. So 
Oh, nice. They, uh, and then uh, they sent uh, me notice that it was it was in the running for their annual award, the Atari Star Award, and uh, that was of course very exciting. And they they flew my wife and I out to San Francisco. Oh, wow. uh, put us up at the St. Francis Hotel and had this award ceremony and took us on a tour of the Atari facilities and other things in the area. And uh, that was all very exciting. And in the other programs, there was you know, four programs that were in the final running, and mine was the only game. And this was the third Atari Star Awards, and the game had never won you know, the award. And I, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to win. You know, something that was more practical would, you know, be something that they'd want to uh, publicize. So I was really bored when it won the award. You know, I, I didn't have anything prepared to say. <laughs> like that. You know, so I was just stumbling through that at the ceremony. But uh, that was a lot of fun. And, but then it was just just months after that that uh, the Atari crash happened, basically. Yeah. And the the uh, the whole the company was basically going bankrupt because they'd uh, wasted a lot of money on things like the ET game for the uh, for the BCS system. You know, they paid a whole bunch of money to license the rights for it, and then wrote a really crappy game that, that couldn't yeah. make it back. And yeah, they sold Atari to Tremail Technologies, the ones who had ran Commodore. Right. And uh, they just started cutting. You know, first thing that went was Atari Program Exchange. You know, so it's like everything was getting better and better, and then all of a sudden it just went away. <laughs> it just like fell off a cliff. Yeah, really, really. It wasn't long after that uh, I saw the first Nintendo uh, systems were starting to show up in stores. The original NES, and I, I remember thinking, you know, oh gosh, and you know, I don't think the video game industry has just collapsed. <laughs> 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 but uh, they had a much better system, and they had, the main thing was they had much better games, and they had quality control on their games that uh, that allowed them to succeed. Where Atari had blown it. Yeah, the difference between the the third party licensing on Nintendo versus Atari was yeah much much different. Yeah, it really was. You got so you got to see Atari in its in its real heyday, and you know I suppose when you visited. APX and stuff. The Atari complex must have just been huge. Oh, it was. Yeah, we had a hard time finding the APX building because we were driving <laughs> around this campus and you know all these buildings with Atari on them. You know, and we'd stop and I can't remember. I, I know I stopped and asked somebody how to you know where APX was to get us to it. But <laughs> when we came back for the awards ceremony and they took us on a tour, and I mean it was just you know it was pretty lavish. They had really nice facilities. They had this big game room that had every Atari. Uh, arcade game they'd ever made and it, you know you go in there and play for you know they were all set up you know, to put quarters in them you know, just hit the button and yeah. start playing and so that was that was a lot of fun must have just been like wide-eyed just walking around looking at all this stuff and yeah, yeah it really was it was i was let's see i guess i was about 20 24 years old then something like that and uh, yeah it was pretty pretty amazing yeah i i live in the bay area so i've i've gone to kind of look at some of the old buildings, and of course, you know, there's no no Atari things left, but the uh, all the buildings are still there, and so all the, you know, looking at all the addresses and and what is it, 1165 Baragas or whatever, and just kind of yeah. walk, walking around yeah. there and kind of imagining what it must have been like. Yeah, uh, uh, it was. Uh, they were really they were. Some Atari was synonymous with video games back then, and it's hard. It was hard to imagine that uh, it would it could all fall apart that quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. It, the end came kind of 
sudden, I think, yeah. But it was certainly fun while it lasted. Yeah, it was. So when you talked to the APX people, did you, I mean, when you went back and forth with them, did they did they have a lot of suggestions? or were they... No, not too much. I mean, uh, they uh, you know, they've gone downhill. They wanted to, to get the hundreds of the uh, air, and then, you know, if there was a bug or something like that, they found that they're really good. Did they have, a, like, a, a playtest group or something where they would test things and then give you feedback, and then you could fix problems that showed up? Yeah, they they had a a uh, people sitting there, you know, when the game submissions would come in, you know, they'd plug them in and try them out. Matter of fact, one of the guys that uh, I talked with on the phone there several times said that when Getaway came in, there was a the girl that was sitting in the cubicle next to him was the one who had opened it, and she put it in her computer and started testing it, and she she yelled over to him, hey. There's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this game. The whole screen is moving around, or something. Oh. Like, you know, I guess I've never seen one that scrolled like that, you know. So they came over and they said, "Oh wow, no, that's what it's supposed to." Be. <laughs> and there was a, um, there was another bug. I remember, uh, you know, I had written, I had uh, 48k in my Atari 800, mm-hmm. and uh, technically it only needed 32k. To run, but when they tested it on a 32k machine, it would work. But then when you did a reset, it would the bottom part of the screen got uh, trashed up. Oh, and it, I I finally figured out that it was uh, when you did reset, it would create the uh, the default screen. You know, the 40 characters by 24 line oh, uh-huh. blue screen, that, and and the display list for that screen would be put at the top of memory. So it was right in that display list over the top of my character map. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so I had had to shift the character map around a little bit to, to leave a because there wasn't any way to avoid that. It was going to do that whenever you pressed reset. So uh, I had to move the character map so it wouldn't overlap that same part of memory where they were going to uh, create that default display list every time yeah. you hit reset. And, uh, but that, that was the only things I can remember, those uh, couple of bugs and uh, the request for the hundreds of a second on downhill. And then they, when they were wanting to translate it to other languages, you know, and that kind of, they got in touch with me about that and about doing the poster. But there really wasn't, a, that, as I recall, a whole lot of uh, suggestions, you know, for gameplay or changing things like that. They pretty much, either they liked it or they... They didn't, or maybe they did with other people. I don't know, but uh, they didn't with me. Oh yeah. Did did they have you write the manual up, or did they do that themselves? Yeah. Oh yeah. You had to write the manual and submit that along with your uh, tape or disc or whatever you had to, oh. as as part of as part of the original submission. Yeah. My wife typed all that in too and helped me with writing the, the manual and. Uh, and then they then they would they printed the manual to go in with the to go in with the, the game package. Actually, on the manual for Getaway, I had an old you know back then the printers were these dot matrix printers, Epson printers that I had, and so I'd written yeah. a little routine to to print out on the printer a kind of a crude copy of the map that the, you know just basically by reading what was in memory and and printing it out. Uh, so that so that they could include a a version of what the whole map looked like in in the uh, user manual. 
Oh yeah, so I'm I'm looking at the manual right here. Is is that the one that's in the the final manual that came out? Or did yeah, they? Yeah, that was it. It's just, now they didn't. That was what that was what was in the manual. They mm-hmm. uh, they made they, they had an artist drew up a much nicer map uh, that they put on the poster and used in some ads, I think maybe or something like that. But yeah. the one that, the very crude dot matrix one that I sent them, that's what went in the manual to start with. Uh, one of the one of my friends, another podcaster who does a another Atari podcast has. He has the getaway map like hanging on his wall right now. So oh, cool! <laughs> he's proud of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was I was amazed at that. I mean, that the, they had a real artist <laughs> drawing that. <laughs> I, I wish I could have drawn that good for uh, making the actual game. It's a very detailed map for sure. Yeah, it must have must have taken you a long time, even with that editor, to create it all. Yeah, it did. It, did. it was pretty tedious working all that out, and uh, of course, it's pretty. It's fairly low. Resolution. They used a, uh, a character mode that they had that actually used double scan lines for each bit, so that the so that the pixels would be square. And right. Make yeah. it all work work out more evenly, and so not not very high resolution, obviously. But uh, that also helped make the, the map bigger for the amount of memory that it used. Yeah, memory considerations were a huge issue. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean it's, it's hard to think now. The the amount of memory is at 48k. You know that seemed like a lot of memory, and now it's you know that's not even you know a picture one picture file is bigger than that. I know, right? <laughs> but it was a very efficient uh, system. I mean, you could get a lot done with a little bit of memory with the Atari graphics hardware, and you could uh, you didn't have to have everything mapped out as, as a bitmap. You know, you could, there's a lot of shortcuts that save memory. So that's what made it possible, really. Yeah. Having the hardware that did all the scrolling for us, you know, that's... Uh... Yeah. I would have never even attempted that without that hardware. <laughs> yeah, so I have this little editor that I wrote, this little hex editor, and so I, I pulled out the data for Getaway, and I'm looking at the map right here, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's very... It's fun. I think the map... The map itself is is bigger than the rest of the code of the program. I think <laughs> the map's about about 16k, and I think all the rest of the code in the program is about 8k or something like that. So uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty easy to fit it in. And they were, and it, when there was discussions about putting it on a cartridge, and they their limit at that time on a cartridge was 16k. Oh, uh-huh. so basically, I was going to have to. Uh, I was I was working on a scheme to ba- to basically compress the data for the character map, you know, so it would fit in less than 8K. And then when you plug the cartridge in, it would uh, expand it out into the available RAM, you know, to oh, draw, yeah. draw the character map into RAM, but it would be compressed on the cartridge. But in the in the actual, I didn't bother to do that in the the game that came on tape or disc. It just loaded the the character the map right into memory as it was on the tape or disc. Yeah, I'm looking at I I've got a, just a you know an, a copy from Atari Mania. I was looking at it. Yeah, it's just uncompressed and yeah, the raw data is right there in the executable. Yeah, that's right. Now I have a I have a question for you. Sure. On the um, on, in, in the code itself, would it be possible to 
edit the maps in in memory now, or is the map somehow also hard coded in the code? Or if no, if I were to go in and just change some road, or like add some new road someplace, would the would the police be able to track that new road? And uh, oh yeah, yeah. Basically, the the code in the game just looks at the 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 map data to decide what to do. Okay. So it. it yeah, it, it, the police cars, you know, they, they look at where they're at. Well, now, the one thing that might change, let's see. You know, it starts out at that default position on the map. Yeah. So if you moved where that home base was, that might not work. But if there wasn't road right there, you know, it always starts your car off at that point, and that's a defined. I'm pretty sure that's just a hard, oh, yeah. hard-coded uh, coordinate. It starts out there, but then to place the the three police cars and the armored van, it just uh, it places them at random, and it finds random places by scanning the the map. And if it's not a if it's not a road, it won't place it there. You know? oh. So it just finds a random piece of road to place it on. So yeah, you could move, you could change the map around all you wanted, and uh, as long as uh, yeah, I'm and uh, you know the the home. I know the hideout and probably three gas stations too i can't remember for sure i'd imagine it might mess something up if you change those but it might not I mean, I, you know the code probably just checks for that character those character values you know to see if you hit the gas station i don't think it checks for the actual coordinates oh, okay. just like with the stop signs and the and the roadblocks that pop up it just puts them up at random and the same thing with position of the prizes it just scans picks a random place on the map and if it isn't a piece of road, it just goes fix, tries again, you know. <laughs> it finds random random places on the map that are road to place them. And then as you as the cars are moving along, each loop, each cycle through the event loop, it uh, you know it, it you're moving your your car is going forward, and if it sees that the next place ahead is not uh, is not road, then it'll stop. It won't go any further. Okay. And for the police cars, when the police cars move along, you know, as long as there's uh, just empty road ahead, they'll keep going forward. And then whenever they come to an intersection, then they make a decision, you know, to go, you know, right, left, or keep going straight. And, uh, or, you know, depending on whether there's a right, you know, however many ways there are to go, it chooses between the ways there are to go. And it, and it actually, that's how the, the intelligence of the police cars is built in it to start out with whenever they get to an intersection, they just pick a, uh, a way to go completely at random. Oh yeah. And then as the, as they get, you know, as you accumulate more loot or you know, <laughs> move higher up in the game, there's a register in there. It's a 20, uh, you know, one byte register that, that I label smart that that's sort of their, their level of intelligence. So when it's at zero, they just wander around at random. <laughs> when it's at, when it's at two hundred and fifty five, then they always turn in the direction towards you. So you know because they they know where you are on the map. Oh yeah. So yeah, you know, so somewhere in between, if say if it's at one hundred twenty eight, then half the time they'll turn towards you, half the time they won't. Well, you know, so that's how they kind of. Oh, I see. Yeah. Act act not interested at the. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So when you get it, whenever you hit the, at each level, as soon as you hit the armored band, that register would go to 
maximum value, and so they just chase you relentlessly until you get back to the to the home, and then it would reset it back to a lower level. Oh, right. And then each each higher as you progress through the game, each higher level that you're at, the minimum that that would go back to would increase. So yeah, oh, yeah. You, you know, getting the later stages, even when they're you know, even when you don't have any loot on you, they're still coming after you to some extent. Yeah, I've never, I'm not a great game player by any means, and so I've I've not gotten far enough. But friends of mine who play this have said that at the really high levels, it gets just, it gets so tough that it's it's, like, <laughs> you know, the the police are just like on you all the time. Yeah, that's right. It, it's tried, eventually the game's trying to make you lose. It was like most most video games were back then. You know, the idea was you. It just got harder and harder and harder till it over overwhelmed you. Yeah. And then you have to commit a quarter. And <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, in, in fact, it, uh, after you get to all the levels that are defined on there, the boss level is the highest level. If you complete the boss level to go to the next level, there's uh, what it actually does at that point is it uh, speeds up by factor two. It started it start, at that point. It starts moving. Everything moves twice as fast, so wow. so it really gets hard. Then yeah, you're just you know the cops. Everything's happening twice as fast. That was sort of like the, the overkill, you know. If you made it that far, I'm gonna you know try to end the game one way or the other. You know? And uh, I've I've made it to that part uh, quite a few times, but I've never gotten through another level of finding all three prizes and getting armored van and getting back to the home base once oh, wow. it's reached that point. Yeah. But my sister has. Really? My sister, she's better better at it than me. Yeah, she's played a lot, and she's gotten to that level and actually gotten through that level and through the next one, I think, too, playing it, uh, you know, at, at double speed. She got through two more levels of it. And, it, and at that point, the police are just on you continuously. You know, so there's no, you can't make a single slip up or <laughs> it's over. Yeah. It's a fun game for sure, and it, you know it's 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 still one of the earlier games. But you know to do all the scrolling and stuff, that it was it was one of the one of the first that I remember seeing that had you know this full screen huge map scrolling. Yeah, very impressive. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was that was really its biggest selling point, I think. And I know I'd seen uh, uh, Chris Crawford had wrote a game uh, Eastern Front, right? Yeah, that had a smooth scrolling map on, and I had that game, and I was impressed with the scrolling. I thought, well, yeah. I want to write a game that that does that, but I want to create a much bigger map, you know, the biggest map that I can that I can reasonably fit in to. And actually, I guess I could have made it even bigger with within the limits of the. I wanted to work on a 32k system, so that was about as big as it yeah you could get for that. But uh, and plus, it was <laughs> it was already biting off a lot to. To draw to create the map and all the details in it at that at that level, but it was uh, I think that definitely the the signature feature of the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm intrigued now. It's like maybe I can make some some new levels for Getaway. You know, make some you know change the roads around and see how that affects gameplay. And yeah, that know. would be. That. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You, you can make a version now wherever you know where the map would change. At higher levels. Oh, that's true. Yeah, every every level could go to a different city or something. Every yeah. level could be different. Yeah, right. Or right. Or as you 
played it, you could unlock new areas of the map or something like that. Yeah, so I might I may have I may have to make a little getaway level editor here and <laughs> see how that works. <laughs> That'd be cool. If you come up with one, send it to me. Yeah, do you do you, have, you happen to have any of your old source code for the game or? Uh, I think I do in a box in the attic somewhere. I've got the. I know I still got the the old disc, floppy disks. I don't know if they'll still read or or not. I haven't actually gotten my. I've still got a Atari. I don't have my Atari 800. I think it finally bit the dust because I have like an 800XL. Oh yeah. And a disk disk drive and the old discs with you know with getaway and the source code and stuff. Wow, I haven't gotten it out in, <laughs> in many years. So whenever I've played it a few times, but I I just do it on an emulator, you know, on uh, yeah. on my Mac. And, well, if, if you had any interest at all in, in sharing the source code, that we we in the Atari community would love to see that. And uh, I sure, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Um, that'd be that'd be no problem. No, I'll see if I can find it. And if it's a disc, it'll still load. There was a fellow who got in touch with me uh, a year or so ago who was interested in uh, doing a remake of the getaway and you know they kind of i said sure go ahead and you know, i know he he just kind of uh reverse engine you know did it used a dissimilar and uh oh yeah reverse engineered a lot of it and he was playing around with it i think he ran into some kind of issues because uh, i quit hearing from him about it but i know he had you know, he'd done kind of updated some of the artwork and sounds and stuff and uh was working on an Android version, I think. Oh, really? Of it. Oh, wow. But, but I don't know where that, that stands. I haven't heard anything from it for a while. But, uh, yeah, I would be, that would be fine with me. I I would love to see somebody else uh, improve on it and uh, give it a give it some new legs, and maybe some people could enjoy playing it now. Yeah. No, I, you know, there's there are definitely a lot of people still into retro hardware as well, but... Um, yeah, you know, as, as you say, you could do more stuff with, you know, even modern devices. But I think, yeah, we we'd certainly be interested in, in seeing the original source because it's it's you know it's just much easier to understand than you know with all the comments and and you know labels and stuff than trying to work from a disassembly. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, and I did have comments, and I'm not sure how much, but I'm sure there's you know enough comments to kind of get the basics of what the what each part of the routines you're doing. Uh, yeah, I'll have to see that. We're, I think, as I told you before, we're in the process of moving, and we've been cleaning stuff out of the attic, and I'm, I'm going to have to get all that out eventually here to put on the moving truck. I'll, <laughs> I'll find the box that has, has the old Atari stuff in it and see if I, I may just even have a a printout version of it, but uh, hopefully I've got the floppy disk. And, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I don't have any way to... Even if I could load it into the Atari, I don't think I've got any way to get that over onto uh, uh, onto the Mac or PC um, here you know, to, to email it. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, I don't... I'm sure uh, there's devices out there. Yeah, I've got I've got some hardware to do, and then um, Kevin Savitz, one of the... Uh, this, this friend of mine that does the uh, um, Antic podcast, he has a whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah, if... If you don't happen to have something that would read it, if you know, if we might just be able to borrow the floppy for a little bit and scan it and then send it back, we could do that. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fine. Hopefully, it still hopefully it still works. So I'll if I can find it and test it out, I'd be glad to send it to you. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, thanks again for taking the time out to talk to me about it. This is great. You're very welcome. I appreciate that uh, some people are still interested in uh, in the good old days with, uh, <laughs> right. Atari computers. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly a, a happy time in my life, and happy memories, and uh, I enjoy reminiscing about it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I, it's I have the same feeling, you know, that growing up with these things and learning how to program and. You know, I I credit the Atari with my career. You know, I I write software now for a living, and I I wouldn't have done that had I not had the Atari when I was growing up. So yeah, that's yeah, that's that's great. And uh, you know, I I was I already was working as a chemical engineer when I started playing around with it. There was times when I thought, you know, maybe I'll you know maybe I should go into this kind of <laughs> career. And then of course when Atari Atari crashed, I thought, oh, I'm glad I didn't give up my day job. <laughs> 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 but uh, who knows what would have happened? Uh, yes, I'm, I appreciate your interest in it, and I'm glad that it was that kind of positive influence on you, the whole Atari world, to uh, yeah. get you started down that road. <laughs> yep, good times for sure. Yeah, well, thanks again, so You Mark. live in the in the Bay Area, there. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I am not. Well, it's I'm not so not super close to San Jose, but. Um, it's, it's you know it's an easy drive and so I've yeah. I have gone to see the Atari headquarters a couple of times and you know nobody is, is of course left that does anything about Atari but um, sure, yeah. it's just fun to walk around and see it and oh yeah yeah that would be neat that was a beautiful part of the country I enjoy going up we've been out there a few times on vacation and yeah it's a great area I wasn't I wasn't sad to come to California although you know sort it's super expensive and it's yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that's that's because so many people want to live there. Yeah, I know, and I, you know, it's it's like when you when you move out here, certainly the weather, it's like you can see why people want to live here for that, and then and a lot of good jobs there too. So yeah, the tech industry, you know, for my field, it's it's certainly a big a big draw. There's just a lot of stuff you can do, software stuff, and and the Atari name still still lives on every now you know every now and then somebody else will buy it from whoever currently owns it and <laughs> release release something or another you know it's like uh, it, it was such a powerful brand at the time that uh, all these years later it still you know has some value even though they've done almost nothing since then you know it's amazing yeah even the kind of the, the zombie company that it is now you know but you're right it's still the name is out there and right. You, and so you, you kept your old your old system then I guess. Oh, he said you had an 800XL now. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure if I if I still have the 800 or not. I remember I know I got an 800XL and I can't remember if that was because that one quit working. It seems like it did, but I know I've got an 800XL on a disk drive because well, it's been quite a few years ago. But I get, got it out and plugged it all up, you know, just to see if it still worked, and it did. And the disc would still load then, you know, so it's, uh, unless the uh, ambient electromagnetic radiation has erased all the little <laughs> particles on, the, on that floppy disk, then maybe it'll still load again. Yeah, I, you know, I was surprised. I kept my old disc just out of happenstance. I wasn't really thinking about it. And, I, you know, they turned up in a box, and I, had, I was like, wow, I haven't thought of this in years. And I got them out, and probably 75% of them read with no errors at all. And the other quarter probably had some errors, and some a few were just totally unreadable. But I was surprised actually at how much I was able to get off the disc. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I would, I would love to get the get the source code off of there if 
if that's possible. So yeah, I'll see if I can find those. And, uh, and if I can, I'll, I'll send you an email and uh, you can tell me where to send them to. Sure, that'd be great, yeah. We in the Atari community were definitely looking forward to possibly seeing that if we're still able to read the bits. So that would be awesome. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, well, again, great talking with you. Appreciate Keep an eye out for that Atari stuff. Okay, I sure will. And, yeah, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Good to talk to you, Rob. All right, thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate Mark taking the time out to talk with me. And I apologize it's taken so long to get the interview out and posted. I exchanged emails with him again recently, and he's still looking for all those discs, so hopefully we can find the source code at some point. So my whole point for writing Omnivore originally was to get a map editor for Getaway, and so that does exist. So if you load up Omnivore and, and load up a, a Getaway ATR, or if you go to the Atari Age forum thread and load up the ATR that Wade generated, you can then play around with the map and, and generate some stuff. Wade did a lot of testing of Omnivore and you know created this whole map inside Omnivore. So there's a whole new level for the first time, a brand new level for Getaway. So great effort from Wade, not only for testing Omnivore and doing this stuff, but for creating this whole new map for the Atari community. So I encourage you to check that out. If you haven't, there's a link in the show notes to the forum post. You can download an ATR with this new image and new map of Getaway. There's a whole bunch of Easter eggs he put in the map too. So I don't know if he's posted the full list yet of Easter eggs, but there's a bunch of stuff you can find. And during the development of the map, he found a few quirks that you've got to be aware of if you're going to make your own map. And in order to talk about that, we've got to talk about a little bit of the technical detail of the game. So this game, the graphics mode is Antic Mode 5, which is the 40 by 12 five-color mode. So each tile can then have five colors in it. The pixels themselves on the screen look like they're graphics 7 pixels. You know, they're the square blocks. That would be uh, 160 by 96 if it were the full graphics mode. But the way the tiles work, that, that means that the individual tiles are four pixels across and eight pixels high in these square, you know, graphic seven blocky pixels. The player missile graphics are used for the cars and the police and the armored van and stuff. And those are in um, eight pixel wide shapes. So to make the roads, the roads are actually two tiles wide and one tile high, which creates an eight by eight block. So the roads are in units of these eight by eight blocks, you know, which is two tiles wide, but they have to be on even boundaries. So you can't have roads offset by a single tile. They've got to be offset by two tiles. And the leftmost tile has to start on an even boundary, assuming you count from zero as the left-hand side of the whole big wide map. The map is 256 characters wide, so tiles can only, or road tiles anyway, can only start on the, you know, the zeroth, the second, the fourth, the eighth, you know, dot, dot, dot. But it looks like the detection of if you're on a road or not is only performed on the left character, so the one on the even boundary. I did some tests where I had just one pixel or one tile wide roads, and the ones on the even side you could drive on, the ones on the odd side you wouldn't be able to drive on. So the first thing we noticed as we were testing all these maps was that if you have a dead end, you can drive on it fine and turn around, but if the police reach a dead end, the game will lock up. It goes into an infinite loop where it's trying to determine like a random number of which way to turn, but it can't turn anyway because there's no left or right and it can't back up. So one thing to note when you're designing your own maps is there are no dead ends allowed. The next thing to be aware of is that the hideout is hard-coded. So you can't change the location of the hideout. You can put the hideout character somewhere else, but it's just going to be ignored. And I haven't discovered where in the code that that location is set. Hopefully if Mark's able to find the source code, we can adjust that then in subsequent versions and we can you know put the hideout wherever you want. But for right now, it's, kind of, it's hard-coded. So you've got to leave that hideout there in the character uh, map that you make. The gas stations, however, do not appear to be hard-coded, so you can put those anywhere. The original map only has three gas stations, but as Wade found, you can put more than that, and they will still work. You just have to drive over the little G character, and it will fill you up with gas. So that was all we could find. So Wade spent a lot of time making this a big new map, and then he discovered that there was still getting lockups somewhere. And we looked all over the map and couldn't find any dead ends. 
So he spent a lot of time debugging this, and eventually in one of the demo modes, he found that one of the computer cars was driving over a person on the side of the road, yeah, committing vehicular manslaughter, as Wade said. And this was being treated as a dead end, and so that's where it was freezing. So as it turns out, some of the tiles can't be placed next to roads. And because the road detection is only performed on, like, the even tiles, you can't even place them with a tile buffer. It's got to be two tiles of buffer between the road and a person character. But once he discovered that, he got his map working, and it's been solid and playtested it for a lot of hours and it's working great so it's up it's been posted again on the atari h forums and i'll include a link to that when i talked to mark one of the ids he mentioned was having different cities for different levels and i think that'd be a really cool idea the um the way it's set up now is like there's that one big map and so it'd probably run into memory issues because it does take up a lot of a lot of space so hopefully mark will be able to locate the source code because i think adding multiple cities would be a lot easier having the source code to look at but that would definitely be a project that i'd be interested in and checking out So I hope you have fun checking out Getaway, and especially Wade's new map of Getaway. Thanks again to Mark Reed for talking with me and sharing some of the details that kind of prompted me to go down this whole path of of creating this map editor. As it stands, the map editor in Omnivore is kind of hard-coded to Getaway, but it's applicable to other things. But if you load up Getaway, it'll put some special tiles in in place in in the one bit of the user interface. Omnivore is definitely still in a beta state. There's a lot of features that couldn't be added that aren't added yet. And um, so just I want to set your expectations if you use the program. So save your data a lot if you're using it. It's not like I experience a lot of crashes or something, but, you know, just in case, it's still, you know, not a hugely tested program because it's so hard, I can't figure out a good way to test GUI programs. I have a lot of unit tests and stuff, but testing of GUI-based programs is always difficult. But that's why I have listeners. So yeah, listeners, test the program for me and send me some feedback. As we listen to the outro music here, uh, Tomasz Majewski's version of Jan Hammer's Crockett's theme from Miami Vice, of course. just want to remind everybody that I am a member of the Throwback Network, which is a collection of retro-themed podcasts. One new one that just came out is Rob O'Hara's Cactus Flax podcast. And the theme of that show is every episode is going to be about one arcade game that he's owned. He's owned a bunch of arcade games, I think 50 or so. And so each episode is going to be dedicated to one of those games in the order in which he acquired them. In other podcasts, he's told stories about how he's acquired some of them in groups, but this will be interesting to hear how he acquired each one of them. So, yep, looking forward to listening to more of that. I think he's up to episode three right now. For other arcade podcasts, of course, I recommend Ten Pence Arcade, and No Quarter. For Atari 8-Bit Podcast, of course, there's Antic and all the Antic interviews that are going on. Inverse Itasky and the new one, the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart Podcast. There's also the close cousin, the Atari 5200, and that has the 5200 Super Podcast. And for the random non-retro gaming podcast recommendation, how about 80 of the 80s, where they're counting down the top 80 songs of the 1980s. One of the co-hosts, Clay, was interviewed on the Intellivisionaries podcast recently in episode 25, so check out the Intellivisionaries as well. And I keep hearing rumors of an Atari ST podcast, but nothing's shown up yet, so hopefully those rumors will come true someday. As far as this show goes, you can always leave me feedback at my email, which is feedback at playermissile.com, or on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. Thanks to everybody who's left ratings on iTunes, I really appreciate that, and if you feel like it, and have not rated the podcast yet, please feel free to jump over there and leave me some stars. So that's it for episode 19, thanks again for your patience, and I hope you check out Omnivore if you're interested in editing Atari 8-bit binary files. And you can always leave me feedback about that as well. That's the same email address, feedback at playermuscle.com. I will see you again in episode 20, where we will cover April 1982 and some game that I haven't decided. Although I have a... It may not be a 1982 game. I'm thinking about something special, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And while I still don't think I'm going to be on a regular schedule for a while, I will return. So thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode, whenever that is.